It's the Fun to Know Podcast with Dan Buskirk. On today's show, musician, blogger, and record label founder, Jim Slade. The high school big with his own, uh, among the, the less prestigious debuts I've heard. I've, I've yeah, heard for sure. Early on, you know, it's months into learning how to play, and uh, we decided we had to play a school assembly. So Seth wanted to be prepared, and he thought that we stunk. And he said, this is going to be a disaster. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> and, you know, no, it's booked. We're doing it. Our big uh, number was going to be Bob O'Reilly. So Stuart, you know, who was still playing keyboards with us at that time, he couldn't really play that part. So he had it on a cassette tape, and we were all set up for it. Of you him know, or just the opening of the original uh, of song? Of the opening of the original song he put on a loop <laughs> so before you're the show. standing in front of the band, listening to the loop. <laughs> and we just blew it, like, on all levels, you know, power chords out of sync. It was terrible. Uh, yeah, that was our debut. Welcome back to the Fun to Know Podcast. I'm Dan Buskirk, and here we talk to artists, musicians, and writers about their lives and work. You can find the Fun to Know Podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, leave comments for us there, or email us at fun to know Podcast, always with the numeral 2, at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to leave a review over at our page on iTunes. As spring arrives, things are heating up for the Fun to Know podcast. Upcoming conversations include an indie film director whose second film was mentioned on many best-of lists in 2014, the return of one of our most popular guests, and a young painter whose journey has taken him to both sides of the Iron Curtain. Check back as we labor mightily to keep our bi-weekly schedule. On today's show, musician, blogger, and label owner Jim Slade. I met Slade back in the mid-80s when his band Nixon's Head was a regular in Philadelphia-area clubs. The five-piece rock and roll titan, The Head, specialized in loud rock and roll inspired by 60s garage pop nuggets and the early new wave movement, all brought to life by a quintet of close-knit friends. Their shows were some of the most joyous rock and roll shows I've ever witnessed, and they were a big part of an underdocumented Philly scene of the mid to late 80s, sharing gigs with similarly-minded bands like the Ben Vaughn Combo, Baby Flamehead, Sky Grits, the Wishniacs, Electric Love Muffin, as well as the Dead Milkmen, whose reputation spread worldwide. You can check out all these bands and more on a compilation called You're Soaking In It, a compilation produced by New York rocker Palmyra Del Ran and released in 1988 on Apex Records. Although Nixon's head broke up for a few years in the early 90s, they soon reformed and have continued on for over three decades now, recording a number of releases, the most recent being 2014's Mod, a dual disc with the band The Donuts. Locally in Philadelphia, you can get a chance to see Nixon's head at the Boot and Saddle on Broad Street Saturday, April 30th, as the band plays a one-time-only gig as The Magnificent Seven, performing a set of your favorite Clash tunes as long as your favorites are pre-combat rock. Also on the bill, Lower Wolves doing their REM tribute. That's Saturday, April 30th at the uh, Booten Saddle. Outside of his time with the head, Slade is the moderator on the popular music blog Rocktown Hall, a spirited forum to discuss the aesthetics of classic rock and roll. You can find them at rocktownhall.com. Slade also founded the Groove Discs label, which, besides releasing Nixon's Head's music, has distributed releases from the bands Trolleyvox, The Knife and Fork Band, Dave Ragsdale, and the Stiff Records tribute disc, The Stiff Generation. 
You can find out more at Groove Discs, that's D-I-S-Q-U-E-S dot com. I met Slade a few weeks back at the Fun to Know Kitchen Studio. Our conversation fueled by Jim's as-yet-unfinished memoir entitled And It Was All Right, named after a line from the Velvet Underground tune Rock and Roll. It is an inspiring, honest, and intimate look at growing up in love with rock and roll in the 70s and 80s that also touches on family strife and the struggle of a young man to forge a place in the world. It's a music-drenched, extended conversation between two rock and roll disciples, littered with many asides and a batch of great tunes from across Nixon's head's discography. Let's head into that conversation after the first tune from the Nixon's head debut EP, The Doug Factor. Here at the Fun to Know podcast, excited to be at the kitchen table with the uh, the rock and roll band leader Jim Slade. He's been a leader or co-leader in the band Nixon's Head for over three decades, making a, a certain uh, psychedelic rock and roll racket with that band for years, as well as being the uh, head of the blog Rocktown Hall, the moderator 
uh, on on that website, which uh, hashes over a lot of the important questions of rock and roll. I think just today I saw there was uh, a piece asking why people like Big Shot by Billy Joel. <laughs> why they ever liked it, right? I don't think many people like it now, I hope. <laughs> But also, also, he's. Uh, I just discovered uh, just in the, in the last week or so. Uh, there's a, a delightful memoir that Jim has written entitled "And It Was All Right," uh, referencing the uh, the line from the Velvet Underground's tune "Rock and Roll." But a, a beautiful piece of writing talking about growing up in the '70s and uh, mixing in the forging of the identity of a young uh, a young man as well as uh, forging a, a rock and roll band uh, at the same time as well. It's a, it's a fascinating uh, read, and I hope more people get to read it. And we're going to start off today having Jim read a piece about his discovery of the great band with uh, Tom Verlaine and Richard Lloyd, the band Television. Whenever you're ready, welcome to, sure. the, uh, to the show here, Jim. Thank you, Dan. And uh, whenever you're ready. Yeah, and just for a little context, this is from a period uh, when I was probably about 15, 16 years old. Used to stop off at a library in Northeast Philadelphia uh, that had a little record section, and I got to you know check out some stuff I didn't have the money to uh, to splurge on at the time. So, um, thanks to his commanding appearance in the last waltz, and then countless testimonials by British invasion artists I'd been studying, like the Rolling Stones, I was aware that Muddy Waters was a very serious artist whose works I must examine. The Waters album was produced by Johnny Winter, the long-haired albino rocker and brother of the equally albino Edgar Winter, who struck instrumental gold with the fascinating Frankenstein. I knew that Johnny had credibility among the blues rock scene. On first listen as I spun the record at the library counter, Hard Again didn't excite me the way Muddy's performance of Manish Boy in the last waltz excited me. The album even kicked off with a version of that song. The spare dry recording featured plenty of blues hollers and empathetic grunts and moans from Johnny and Muddy's other bandmates, but I wasn't getting goosebumps. I'd have to check this record out and listen to it more closely, with the shades drawn and the music reverberating freely. I didn't like headphones then, as I still don't like them today. My initial spin of the television album, on the other hand, brought on an entirely different reaction. Despite having read about this band for the past two years in the pages of Trouser Press, Cream, and even Rolling Stone, I'd never heard a lick of their music. Sometimes they were referred to as the Grateful Dead of punk rock, which didn't sound promising. Once I read an interview with band leader Tom Verlaine in which he had avoided almost all musical questions posed, and eventually admitted he was more interested in flying saucers than rock and roll. The guy seemed like a self-absorbed dick in the interview, but he looked cool on that record cover, all skinny and devout, even saintly, with one hand seeming to offer me something, maybe frankincense or myrrh, or the red or the blue pill offered to Alice in Wonderland. I placed the needle down on Marquee Moon, and good God did I want to scream as Verlaine dug into the opening chords of See No Evil. The bass and drums entered, followed by the hypnotic riff of the band's other guitarist, Richard Lloyd. I'd learned the names of the band members and which guitar player played which solo, as this information was spelled out in most unpunk jazzbo fashion on the album's inner sleeve. But that's getting ahead of myself. Listening to the intro of See No Evil as I sat in the hush-hush confines of the Northeast branch of the Philadelphia Public Library was one of the most exciting moments in my music listening life. Right up there with the first time Little Jimmy rocked alongside his old green record player and sang along with the yeah yeahs and She Wubs You. 
right up there with the moment a few years later when my college friend Doug and I broke into his childhood friend's house, smoked a joint, and listened to our brand spanking new copy of Elvis Costello and the Attraction's Imperial Bedroom on the family stereo, while neither his friend nor his parents were home. That's a rock crime for another chapter. After a couple choruses of uh, after a couple choruses, Lloyd w- would rip off a furious short ascending solo that cut through all of life's bullshit. The sound of this record confirmed my instinctual response to this world: dig in and cut loose. As Marquee Moon played through the headphones in that library, I kept edging up the volume knob embedded in the counter, hoping that the headphones would contain the deep, aggressive euphony ringing in my ears. I learned what Verlaine was holding in his outstretched hand on the album cover. It was the Eucharist of the slow-burning guitar solo that caps off the title track. My eyes even welled up with tears. Although tears of joys are a common reaction for me, this was the first time I got misty in a library. Probably the only time. <laughs> nice piece. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, the, the reading uh, your at least I think it was 188 pages of your uh, memoir really uh, took me back when uh, I I was born in 1965 what year were you born? 63 63 I, I sensed that the, uh, the the references were just slightly older than than mine but I, I was right there listening to uh, I think a lot of the same radio and a lot of the same bands and making a lot of the same re- discoveries and it was such a uh, uh, it was such a different, you know, I, I took it for granted at the time, but it was such a different world. It wasn't at the Cultural Center the way it is today. I remember uh, just being giddy with excitement, the fact that Deborah, Harry, and Blondie were going to appear on a, a bad variety show in the yeah. 70s of uh, Pink Lady and Jeff, <laughs> um, because it was just so rare that you got to see the, uh, the rock stars, uh, you know, move and uh, just see, get a sense of who they are. And now, now, you know, it's such a different world. We know way too much about uh all the rock stars and, right. and who they are and what they do, um, but I, I guess I was going to talk to you about the the Beatles to 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 start at a, a was certainly a genesis of my interest in rock and roll and and yours too. Uh, do you remember the first Beatles singles you had? Yeah, yeah. She loves you, and which you know I would rock on my floor in my bedroom with my old record player and sing along. She loves you because I had a speech impediment, you know, for I don't know how long when I was little. <laughs> Couldn't pronounce my L's and my R's properly. Did you have a special teacher that you went to in the the early years in elementary school? I, uh, yes. You, well, you know what? I for a while I did, and then my pediatrician said to my mom one day. Do you realize your son's missing half of his teeth? And that's probably the reason why he can't pronounce certain letters. And she, you know, he said, like, why don't you calm down about this? Because I was going to too many special people as, as it was. <laughs> and she, you know, and he suggested that I, I back away from the speech therapist and just see how things worked out when my teeth came in. And, and they worked out all right. And now I just have the Philadelphia accent still. Congratulations! Yeah. And you grew up in the uh, in the Northeast. Yeah, in the far Northeast. The, is that the Greater Northeast? Yes, the Greater that? Northeast. The greater yes, northeast. greater than what? I don't know. But <laughs> <laughs> what, what what was the scene in the Greater Northeast like when you were, you were growing up? Uh, so I'll probably get the crap beat out of me if I ever go back there because I really disliked it. Um, so, but it wasn't you know, and it wasn't bad because my boys now they they make fun of me and say that you know. I've got a lot of nerve talking about my Philly street cred and all this because it really wasn't a bad place. It was a, a neighborhood of kind of, you know, um, middle class, you know, upper working class people, a lot of like, you know, policemen and, you know, people with jobs like that. Uh, fairly respectable place, but completely devoid of culture. And I was this kind of sensitive 
you know, proto snob going to a private school from the from first grade on. So I didn't fit in. And, uh, you know, I was kind of, you know, called a fag and all the kind of things that, you know, one would have been called back then. Uh, so I didn't really have a great time growing up in the Northeast. Plus, my mom was kind of a, a trailblazer on getting divorced at that time, which was not a popular thing in our neighborhood. Uh, so, it, you know, my, my, my childhood memories of, of, uh, of the Parkwood area where I grew up are not, not too great. I mean, I, I had all around good life, it was a safe neighborhood, and, you know, nobody did anything terrible to us, nothing like that. Uh, I just wasn't a real happy kid in that area. I guess we're, there was a, a story that, that comes up in the, uh, in the memoir that, that you were a bit of a, a fighter early on, that there was some uh, misplaced yeah. anger somewhere oh, yeah. early on, which got you uh, transferred to the Friends School, yes, uh, which is a you know the Quaker uh, run uh, school. It seems like you must have had at least when I was growing up, I knew nothing beyond you know the world that I was in. Yeah, it give you some insight to to put some perspective on uh, on the Northeast, I guess. Yeah, yeah. You know, as soon as I was mingling with other kids. I got into fights constantly. Uh, just you know, I would get offended easily and lose my temper, and lash out. And I remember in kindergarten, you know, doing things as as really crazy as throwing entire tables at people. Not just like single tables, but those group kid tables, you know, where maybe four or five kids could sit. And uh, I, I really had issues, and and that's what got me, you know, my my pediatrician. Uh, coming back to him again. That's pretty brand yeah. for uh, elementary school. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and I got sent to this to this friend's school and you know, it took many years for them to kind of love me out of it, you know. <laughs> so was it It's my favorite scene that was it Monterey Pop Festival or one of those movies but uh there's some fight by a poolside, and one of the Crosby, Stills, Nash guys, you know, has to love some crazy hippie out of his freak out. That's cele- uh, celebration, Big Sur. Yeah, I think Big Sur is, yeah. Stephen Stills. Stephen Stills, yeah, yeah. So I had to kind of meet my Stephen Stills over time at this friend school, which was great. But yeah, growing up was, uh, you know, I, I was a high maintenance kid. Yeah. You know, if, if, if they had all of the, the drugs they have for kids now, I would have been loaded up on them. <laughs> I can't find a drone film to take me from this beat. Something is out of view, must be a bad mood. No one's ganking, need a slip. Can't find a harmony inside of me. I got bad vibes, no relief. I got bad vibes in my head. Who knows who land up there? I got bad vibes in my head. Who knows who be dead? Just gets me down And that gets me worked up Don't think I'll be coming out I can't keep in touch I'm in a withdrawal Life's a crawl No one's shaking Need a slam I am the sunset Trying to forget What I don't know What I know I got bad vibes in my head Who knows who'll end up there I got bad vibes in my head Wow! 
This discovery, uh, uh, a place for this misplaced passion, yeah. probably is is the music that was discovered yeah. at that point. Yeah, and, and you know it's funny because the music that that's really what gave me structure in a lot of ways. You know, music and sports was the other thing that would allow me to kind of, you know, find a place. And I think both things had something similar in common. It was reading that bit about you know the the solo and see no evil. The thing I love about that solo, and it's one of the things I love about music. And one of the things that I seek in life is you have this confined, really structured spot, but then you're allowed to just go crazy within it. You know, you're allowed to really kick it out right in that spot. And to me, that's like at the heart of why I think music appeals to me so much, because it, it you know, I know you're not supposed to say it has rules and all that, but I, I'm a believer and I accept rules and I'm a rule follower by, by nature. But I want to have some freedom within the rules. And, and to me, that was the thing with, you know, the Beatles early on, the other rock and roll that I was hearing as a kid in my uncle's room. I mean, that was the kind of stuff that, that really spoke to me. Yeah, I mean, abandon is always sort of on the other side of, yeah. of great rock and roll. But yeah. the, the rock and roll that Nixon's head seems influenced by is the, the, the you know, the, the classic idea of songwriting and pop songwriting. Yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, finding ways to make originality within that framework. Right, yeah, that was the thing. I mean, we love all those, you know, all the 60s singles we grew up with, you know, all that nuggets kind of stuff. And you just got these two minutes and 30 second songs, but you don't know what's exact. I mean, you kind of know what's going to happen, you, you know, after you after you listen to five or six of them, you know when the solo is coming and when there's going to be a little breakdown, when the organ's going to, you know, go up and just swing up to the high note. But it's still great to have that happen and, and to, you know, to get to that point and it just hit that spot. Yeah, one of, the, one of the moments that gets a, a passing mention in the, in the still uh, unpublished memoir yeah. uh, is uh, the all right at the end of a Revolution by, oh by John yeah. Lennon, you yeah. know, and the, the sense of abandon that that, that really has. Yeah. Know? Yeah, I uh, love that. Uh, well, well, tell me, tell me about uh, you know, your early discovery of the Beatles. We, we we've uh, uh, talked to other guests over the years. I think Kathy O'Connell talked about watching them on Ed Sullivan and everything. But that'd be, I'd, I'd love to hear your introduction. Yeah, yeah. So I was probably about four or five years old, and I had uh, my mom's brother, my her younger brother, my uncle. He was kind of the hippie of the family, and. Uh, you know, as I, as I write about, he, he wasn't like, uh, you know, full-blown hippie with long hair and all, but he was like more like Mike Stivick from All in the Family. Nice guy, but, you know, a little out there within the constructs of a, of a you know, working-class family. And still living at home. Still right? living at home, yeah. Uh, he was probably, you know, about, I don't know, 25 or so at this point, you know, early 20s. And, uh, and he had a big bushy mustache, which I thought was great. And he had all these like shirts with like velvet shirts with all kind of crazy designs on them, you know, stuff I couldn't wait to grow into. And unfortunately, I 
quickly got so large at a certain age that I, I outgrew him before I got to enjoy wearing all these amazing shirts, which I would have, you know, died for in 1982. But anyhow, um, so... Yeah, so my uncle would take me into his bedroom, and he had an 8-track player, and he had records, and he bought me my first records, which included, you know, most of the Beatles catalog, uh, the first couple band records, Hendrix, Traffic, and Joe Cocker, and, and Leon Russell. That was kind of my intro to music, and he also gave me a box of singles. So he had all these, uh, like... You know James Brown singles on King. You know Fats Domino. He was a piano player, oh, wow. so he had he and he was he was uh, he and his he had a couple friends and they used to go to the Uptown Theater. You know in in the '60s and just you know it'd say they were like you know a handful of white guys in the crowd and he just loved soul music. So he turned me into all that stuff and the Beatles especially. You know when I was this little kid with "She Loves You," uh, you know "Please Please Me." That stuff just jumped out at me. And at the same time, because you know now it's what I'm. It's like late '60s. You know when I get this stuff. So right around the corner, I'm also getting "Let It Be," and and you know "Let It Be" was then you know completely eye-opening. A year or two later, because now I'm hearing studio banter and songs. You know, misfired starts. And all of a sudden, I'm not just hearing all the kind of process stuff, but I'm always kind of peeking into the studio and really getting a sense of what it must have been like. Uh, the other album that I learned many years later was was Phony, but Steppenwolf Live was fascinating <laughs> to me as a kid. It had this big picture of a wolf, you know, growling on it. And it had crowd noise, you know, which to me, that and Three Dog Night Live, that was the other live captured, album. That, captured live at yes, the forum? Yes, yeah. That was one of my handful of early records yeah. as well. And, you know, when you're with your little kid... And this is, of course, before, you know, rock and roll was on TV and there was MTV and YouTube and stuff. Just the notion that these people performed in a stadium and that everyone's screaming, you know, is fascinating to me. I think it was so, a fisheye photograph yes, of the audience. Yeah. And, uh, but in that early 70s moment, rock really was... Uh, uh, it was interesting that how it really was starting to be taken seriously. I, I guess I was, you know, by 75, I guess I was buying Rolling Stone yeah. and starting to read... Uh, these long, you know, uh, you know, probably you know, five thousand, ten thousand word reviews yep. of of uh, the new Van Morrison record yeah. or <laughs> whatever was in there. And looking at Rolling Stones again, I'm shocked at how large and voluminous and catalog like they were. There was yes. a lot of a lot of info in there. It's true. In in the uh, the writing, you talk a lot about uh, FM rock and yeah. uh, and how that. Aesthetic and everything. I guess IOQ in particular had a had its own feel. Yeah, yeah. So before I even discovered IOQ, FM rock was actually a challenge for me because I grew up. I was a singles guy, and to this day, you know, for instance, I'll take the Brian Jones era Stone singles over anything else by the Rolling Stones. You know that big hits. You know, High Tide in the Green Grass, whatever that collection is. I'll take that over any Stones album. And I know, you know, I'm not supposed to say that, but but I, I do believe that. I really love those singles. And, you know, so growing up, and Philadelphia had such great AM music, you know, it had the, the, the sound of Philadelphia stuff, you know, was really at its height in the, in the early to mid-70s. And I was totally into that. And then I, so I was going to this, to this uh, you know, this, this private school, and, you know, most of the kids were better, you know, economically more advantaged than I was. And they had nice stereos, which, you know, I was still, you know, 10 years away from having even a half decent stereo. 
Plus, they were, you know, some of the older kids were already like smoking pot and doing the kind of things that you probably needed to do to start liking Yes and Genesis and bands <laughs> like that. So they were kind of ahead of me with all that stuff. And, and it was, you know, all these kind of the cool kids at my school were into all this FM rock at first. And, you know, Steely Dan, who I knew from a couple singles, you know, the AM stuff was good. You know, Ricky, don't lose that number and things like that. But then they got into all this other stuff and, 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 and Zappa. And, and there was this kind of like sheen of cool and like you can't touch that that they would kind of give me you know give off to me when we I tried to engage them in a music discussion and they thought that these little singles that I was listening to were you know baby music they didn't understand how I could listen to that when it's you know 1976 or something and there's a new you know Molly Hatchet record out that I haven't listened to yet so it, so FM rock until I then I you know kind of in I, I would try to like figure out like what is this you know how can I is there something here for me and yeah WIOQ at the time in the you know probably mid to late 70s when like David Dye was you know probably had brown hair whatever his original hair color was <laughs> at that time you know, I, I would tune into WIOQ and they would sometimes play stuff that I could make sense of. You know, they played some of the the kind of the what I call like the festival rock that I grew up with from my uncle, you know, the Joe Cocker, Leon Russell kind of stuff. You could still hear that on the radio on WIOQ. And then they started playing, you know, things, um, you know, that I, that I was just starting to learn about, kind of on the edge of, you know, what would become punk rock, you know, when Graham Parker came out. They used to do this feature where they'd play, like, it was some night during the week where they'd play a whole album side or a whole album. And I remember I heard, you know, the first Devo album, and I heard uh, Dire Straits. You know, Dire Straits, really, looking back, no big thing, but Sultans of Swing just fascinated me because, again, it was one of these songs with, like, highly structured... You know, you could hum out every solo in it, which I still think is is a benefit. It's it's great if you can play stuff that you can't hum, but it's it's kind of cool when you can play a solo that's so memorable that you know, 30 years later, I can probably still hum out the the fade out solo on you know, on uh, Sultans of Swing. But you know, so hearing this stuff, I finally start to like get some inroads into that into that FM rock. But it was still you know, then still like something would come up like that. You know, don't eat the yellow snow thing by by Frank Zappa. I was I was just nah. I just I'm not there. I guess I was turning 12 or 13 at the time. But uh, when uh, Graham Parker, I remember it was sort of the the the, the trio yeah. of Graham Parker, Joe Jackson, and Elvis Costello. Yep who made these records that had a certain 60s pop conciseness yeah. uh, and really stood out as being very different from Steely Dan and, uh, you know, whatever else, uh, yeah. Alan Parsons Project, <laughs> who they were sharing the, the airwaves with. And uh, in seventh grade, I, I got my Elvis Costello T-shirt, My Aim is True, uh -huh. with him with the knock-kneed uh, cover on the front of it, and I and I got that first record, and... I, and uh, yeah, kids in school, like, why do you have a nerd on your on your yes. shirt? You know, yep. it was it was it was very alienating to pretty much everybody. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I th you know, I think I talked earlier about being you know called a fag growing up in in Parkwood, and you know, as a kid in the Northeast, and then I go to my like you know my nice privileged you know highly educated private school, and I'm getting called a fag still for having you know <laughs> Elvis Costello and Clash stuff on the inside of my locker. So you just can't win sometimes. <laughs> but it does get into that. Uh, uh, that uh, an element that I really related to in your in your uh, writing about really forging your identity of you know what kind of music you listen to really defines you in a way and I, I really felt in in some ways you know I was unparented uh, you know my father and me didn't spend a lot of time together uh, and 
you know, I was looking for 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 some ideal of, of male role models, and then yeah. these sort of brainy, thoughtful songwriters they they definitely spoke to me in a way that nothing else really in the in the mass culture did. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, because you know one of the things too, and you know you, you might have felt this too. You know, when I was that age, I wanted. I mean, I, I knew I was kind of smart, like I did well in school and all that. But I wanted to be, you know, smart. I wanted to be intellectual someday and grow up and, you know, be a, a man of letters or whatever you would call it, right? <laughs> and so it was kind of nice to finally hear some songwriters that rocked, but they weren't singing about, you know, squeezing the lemon till it runs down my leg or whatever that, you know, Led, Led Zeppelin line is, you know. reading your work there's a lot of touchstones that that i really uh 
felt as well that that aren't you know the first thing that's sort of mentioned in the era but the importance of the american graffiti soundtrack oh my god yeah and how to me i really felt like there was this sort of 60s route to joe jackson and, and graham yes. parker and elvis costello that that went back to to my love for that double album that i listened to a million times as well as loving the movie and having the paperback version of the script even <laughs> at the time that's great <laughs> yeah american graffiti i mean yeah i, I saw that i don't know you know I mean, again, this is way before you could watch stuff over and over on, you know, DVD or whatever. I probably saw it in the theater like five times. I saw it and, twice. Yeah, yeah, and it was just, I was blown away by it again. And so that was cool, too, because, you know, with my uncle and his kind of, you know, he was, he was a piano player, so he was listening to all the, you know, he had turned me on to a lot of that 50s stuff. I remember seeing some concert movie around that same time in the early 70s with, it like culminated in Jerry Lee Lewis and Little Richard having kind of like a showdown. It would be Let the Good Times yeah, Roll. Yeah, Let the Good Times Roll, right? Yeah. So I'd seen that and American Graffiti around the same time, you know, and kind of getting down to that, you know, that pounding kind of rhythm again and, you know, hearing all those songs. And then the movie American Graffiti itself, you know, to this day is still, yeah, is a real touchstone for me. I mean, I talk about in the book, you know, John, what's it, Milner, uh, the, the, you know, the tough guy. Played by like, Paul Lamatt yeah, in the yeah, yeah. Model T. I, I was like in love with him, you know. It's just he was just so cool, and he was like, I wanted to be in that car with him. And I went to you know take what's her name out, uh, you know who was great too. I also had a crush on that movie. I wanted to like you know say excuse me, you know Phillips girl, and, um, and and you know I want to hang out with Milner for a while too. Let me have some of that, you know. So that 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 movie yeah it was something else and and to this day you know i'll just whenever if i'm flipping channels and that's on screeching halt i gotta watch it from whatever point to the end yeah, yeah. the the way music ties the whole thing together yeah. as well being you know, myself somebody who spent a lot of time being a dj the uh, idea of the all-knowing uh, mysterious wolfman yes. jack somewhere uh, you know radiating throughout this entire town the the soundtrack of all these people's adventures was uh, a really totally. captivating yeah. uh, you know fat character oh i i showed it uh, to young kids uh, about 10 years ago uh -huh. in, a, in a class kind of middle school kids and after it was and i remember the film as being this really fun lark and, and right. the craziness they thought it was the most depressing thing they ever saw they found it incredibly downbeat yeah. and i didn't realize how much the 70s sort of milieu still still lingers over that film yeah it was a downbeat time i think you know not just from my personal life i think just in general you know there's that whole period of you know letting it all hang out or whatever those phrases were you know and i think i think like or the culture let it hang out so much that it was like, like a little too much to bear and then like, nixon you know, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. like the fun's over nixon is your president now you know i, I think there is a sense of uh, of depression that sort of yeah. it, it lingers through that, that early era um, but yeah, the, but that did lay the groundwork for my love of like fifties and early sixties music, which yep. the the new wave revolution uh, capitalized. Yeah, on yeah, I agree way. that, and that's the thing, you know. And and again, you know, kind of think, thinking of that. Yeah, I mean, when that so when that punk stuff and the new wave stuff came out, yeah, that's right away what you know Andy and I, my friend Andy and I, got from Nixon's head. What we related it to is these were the records we were playing when we were kids, and now there's this new stuff coming out that has a lot of the same. You know a lot of the same aesthetic behind it and it was so nice to like kind of get back to that 
And then, you know, we'd find these people, you know, all the, the, the Zappa people and, and, you know, Zappa at least has some credibility or, you know, some artistic merit. But there's a lot worse than that to me to this day. <laughs> and those people, they just didn't grow up with that. They didn't know what the, the beauty of a three minute song was, I don't think. Yeah. You know, I think they were listening to whatever crap, you know, show tunes their parents were playing. And then, you know, one day they snuck off and got high and bought, you know, a Genesis record or whatever. <laughs> Hey, Genesis. <laughs> uh, you you mentioned uh, Andy uh, in passing yeah. there. Uh, the the story uh, of uh, loving all this rock and roll. You you soon. Uh, you know, find some compatriots to help you share in this obsession. And, yeah. and uh, you, you really get into how important this relationship with Andy was because of the, the instability in your own home and really yeah. needing a best friend at that time. Yeah, yeah. So he came to our school uh, like midway through third grade, transferred in from another school. And, uh, you know, right off the bat, the school, I don't know because they thought that, you know, he was kind of like an idiot savant at the time, and I probably was too. And I think they... They said, like, I would be a good guide for him. Like, you know, I should be his buddy when he started at the school. They thought for some reason I would kind of get him situated, even they, though they I would, you know, give a kid that job. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it was like the first time I anybody gave me any trust with anything socially, which was kind of cool, you know, because I was usually going to the principal's office for, you know, lashing out at somebody unexpectedly. Uh, and we really hit it off right away. So we've been friends since grade school. And, uh, you know, you know, came up, came up listening to records together and, you know, playing the, you know, playing the, uh, the tennis rackets and doing all the kind of, you know, if you're writing some uh, teeny bopper movie about, you know, geeky guys growing up with rock and roll, that would be us. You yeah. Know? So yeah. it was kind of cool. That's, and I think we'd established yeah. he's the lead singer. Yeah. So he's the lead Nixon's singer of Dixon's Head. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, there's a, the personality uh, that he has, uh, I think, really. Uh, comes out in the singing he's he's an incredibly sort of gregarious yeah. open and uh you know sort of a fun loving person he is yeah we're we're good uh foils for each other because i usually tend to be more intense and you know i i, I almost kind of enjoy pissing off people and he likes being friendly and it's <laughs> <laughs> so you know it's good sometimes we'll kind of call each other on our uh, on our impulses in either direction <laughs> you talk about one of your your early triumphs at the school was the human jukebox yeah yeah uh, in which you, know, you would explain uh... yeah yeah so that was fifth grade there was some kind of you know spring fair that was going on and i think there was some kind of element of fundraising that was part of it and the kids were encouraged to set up uh, booths, you know, like typical kind of fair booths that might be able to raise money. You know, there might be a booth with kids selling cupcakes or, you know, kids. Uh, I don't think there was a dunking tank. Our school was too peaceful to have something like that. But, you know, different types of fairground things. So Andy and I came up with this idea of the human jukebox. And we got a, uh, you know, like a, like a card table, a folding table. And covered it in, you know, we got brown construction paper and, and painted on it to make it look like a jukebox. And we sat inside this little this little confined space. We're both kind of oversized kids. And we're sitting in there with our little record player and a you know a box of singles and we had a playlist of what you could select. And you know, and, and we just sat in there, I don't know, it seemed like, you know, hours. It was probably an hour or two at the most, you know, before we'd suffocate. But it was uh, really fun to be the DJ, to be the jukebox. And, you know, and also I remember at that time, you know, already kind of having these these reactions, you know, kids would kind of call into us through the paper and say, like, you know, do you have any whatever, James Taylor? And we're like, 
James Taylor stinks. You know, that's, <laughs> that's wussy music. You know, we we were, they, we you know we pulling out you know American Graffiti soundtrack songs and stuff like that. Yeah, that was that was really fun, and it was a uh, like a moment. It was one of those moments when you kind of realize, you know, I, I realized like the power that you could feel you know being at the center of of making music yeah yeah, yeah. i mean it, it is you and andy's first musical venture right yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but as the years went on you finally got the uh, uh the nerve to uh start hammering a band together here yes out of, out of some oblong pieces it, it seems it, it's it's uh, it's you know like one of those old you know kung fu movies where you put together the uh, <laughs> one sensei after another into this band. And yes. so there's some really beautiful descriptions of uh, of awkward youth uh, throughout throughout the uh, the writing. That's nice. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it was awkward youth at its finest. Yeah. So uh, so who came together in that first yeah, that so, first band? So so Andy and I started this this idea. We were in a creative writing course. We had this teacher who was actually our fifth grade teacher, and then moved up to the high school was our English teacher as well. So it's kind of cool to have this guy, Larry, who knew us when we were boys and then got to know us again when we were, you know, teenagers. Uh, still boys, of course, but, you know, not, not fifth graders. And uh, so we're in this creative writing class and we decided, you know, it's time. We're going to put a band together. And our, you know, our, our instrumentation was a harmonica that I, that I bought and uh, us sitting down and writing these songs, which were basically limericks, you know, not much more than limericks. Do, do you and, remember any of the, the early tunes? Oh, man. Now, I, you know, I remember it's kind of like, like the, the easiest thing to do in a harmonica is go, dun, 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 you know, blow in and out and in, right? Yeah. It was, so it, was, it would be kind of like a blues-based song where, you know, there'd be like one line and then I'd do like the, the mannish boy type of riff. And then, you know, Andy would sing the next line and I'd do the next riff. Stuff as simple as that, you know, really <laughs> weird. And uh, then we had a friend uh, who was a year older, a guy named Stuart. And Stuart was great. He was this kind of odd kid, you know, a little older, but like uh, weird enough that he would hang with us, which was good. You know, we were always thankful for whatever friends we could get in this little school. <laughs> and Stuart was also a, a, a young rock nerd, and he played keyboards, and he was really into... He was really into FM 70s rock. He was into The Who, which we were already into, but he, especially like late period Who with the synthesizers. Yeah, so Stuart then introduced us to this guy, a friend of his in his neighborhood, this kid Seth. And Seth could play drums, and he actually could play a little bit. So, And by this time, I had a cheapo Sears guitar, and I was learning my chords. You know, so I could string together a couple chords and, you know, barely keep a rhythm. Oh, let me yeah. interrupt you sure. here because I, I'd love you to read the uh, oh, yeah. the part about bringing Seth into the band. I thought that was one of the, uh, the, the funner passages. Okay. Uh, yeah. Seth lived around the corner from Stuart's house, but we drove so Stuart could bring his keyboard. I didn't bother bringing a guitar, figuring I'd be better off talking my way through the songs Andy and I were writing. Stuart warned us that Seth was a little quiet. Seth met us at the door of his family's house, nodded, grunted high, shook hands, and then led us upstairs to his bedroom. I couldn't help but notice while standing in the foyer that Seth's house was immaculate, as orderly as the house my mom kept. The living room furniture was still encased in vinyl slipcovers, which my clean freak mom had recently given up after years of Joey and I begging. As we went upstairs, I noticed something that not even my godmother, the ultimate clean freak in our family, had thought of vinyl strips along the protruding corners of the hallway openings. 
Seth's bedroom was neat, but clearly a teenage boy lived there. There were model cars and various states of progress. A year later, when we started making weekend jaunts to collectible stores on Philadelphia South Street, Star Wars figurines would line his shelves, awkwardly suspended somewhere between playthings and collectibles. Magazines were scattered on his bed. A pile of records leaned against a nearby bookshelf alongside his stereo. In the middle of all this was his full-blown drum kit, a white five-piece pearl set. Stuart set up his keyboard in Seth's bureau, in case they wanted to jam. After it became clear that Seth wasn't going to offer much in the way of his influences and interests, Andy and I ran through our influences and provided our vision of the band we were forming. We ran through our basis in British Invasion music and told him of our dissatisfaction with the current state of rock and roll. He stared straight at us with his deep, dark-set eyes. Are you into the Who? I started. Have you seen the kids are all right? Do you know Elvis Costello and the attractions? Andy asked. You know Pump It Up? Seth downplayed how quiet Seth could be. I gave it another shot. Have you seen any of the new wave bands on Rockworld or Saturday Night Live? The Romantics, Andy jumped in before Seth could stonewall us again. What I like about you. Seth blinked. He knew that song. He liked it. Andy Apice and I actually knew how to play that one. Now I was sorry I didn't bring a guitar. Let's hear you play, we said. Seth walked over to his stereo, pulled Donna Summer's Bad Girls album from his stack, and proceeded to thump along in time to hot stuff. Stuart looked over at us and nodded toward his friend admiringly. Andy and I stole a glance at each other, already sensing where our post-audition recap might be headed. When Hot Stuff finished, Andy and I picked up where we'd left off, racing past a few necessary platitudes. Do you have this year's model? Do you know the intro to Lipstick Vogue? Steph stared, stared back at us. Can you play along to anything you know more rock? Next thing we knew, Seth was pounding out to the rocksteady beats of Can't Get Enough of Your Love and a few other hits by Bad Company. Seth was strong and loud. Following his audition, he offered Bad Company drummer Simon Kirk as an influence. He showed us around the models in his room and told us a little bit about his father and his older brother. He was really quiet, but gentle, not severe as the mean, moody magnificence of his Pete Pest looks might have suggested. Seth stopped, uh, stepped out of the room for a minute, at which point Andy and I quickly had the conversation we sensed we would be having while he kept the beat to hot stuff. One, he could actually play his instrument. Two, he wasn't a dick. Three, we could turn him on to good records. Four, let's offer him the job while we have him standing in front of us. You're the best one, Andy declared as we stepped back into Seth's bedroom. With little more emotion displayed than when we first met him at his front door, Seth accepted our offer to join the band. A week or two later, we would introduce him to Apice and her hold our first rehearsal in Stuart's parents' living room. Stuart plunked out some notes in his keyboard that first rehearsal or two, then faded out of the band as we moved rehearsals to Seth's basement or my garage. Motormouth Apice helped loosen up our new drummer. Next, we had to find a basis and line up our first gig.
values I learned are in front page news, but they've got to be here. We may go far away, but my roots remind me, my roots supply me. What's a couple of days when they're all behind me, they don't confine me. So, so you put together uh, this band with Seth uh, is now the the uh, holding down the drum side. I think you have a much like the Doors, a, a semi-existent uh, bass player. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So another another one of my childhood friends, actually a guy who went back to first grade with me. First, he was kind of the kid who was who was put on my case when I went to this friend's school. This guy Duncan, and he was you know kind of my uh, my first buddy, and so we were friends all through the years, and you know we kind of talked him into becoming our bass player and he he wanted to be the bass player for like the the coolness of it and the ability to meet more girls but he had no interest whatsoever in actually playing the bass so the best we could get out of duncan in those early years was we'd stay up all night cramming with him just showing him the root notes so we could get through you know whatever crappy little gig we could play <laughs> And how long were you were you stewing before you you got your first public gig? You know, it's funny when I look back at all that stuff. Time is I can't tell if things took three weeks or three years, but it was probably probably within six months we played a show at our school, a school assembly, and then some you know party at a dance thing at the school one night. Let's, so let's, pr- let's stop at yeah. that school assembly show. That is, a, <laughs> that is a dramatic part in the, in the writing. Yeah. You, you were, at this point, you were the zone? We were the zone, yep. Yeah. Where, and, where, uh, where do you think that name came from? I think I know exactly where it came from. I was reading, uh, it was one of those you know rock magazines from the late 70s. I forget, it wasn't one of the really cool ones like Trouser Press. It was one of the ones just cool enough that they would have occasionally have a few little articles about bands like The Jam. Maybe Circus. Maybe it was Circus. <laughs> and and there was an article about these, you know, these, these new wave bands coming out of England. And one of them was actually called The Zone in the article. And I thought, that's a cool name. What are the odds that that band's going to make it? 
we're just using that name. And that's honestly where that terrible decision came from. <laughs> I thought it might be a baseball or no. sports. We were in the zone. No, there's no thinking. I just, I think I liked having a Z in the name, you know, and yeah. zombies was taken. The high school big with a zone, um, uh, among the, the less prestigious debuts I've heard. I've, I've yeah, heard for sure. Yeah. So, you know, one of the strengths of, of, of our, you know, long time, you know, working as a band and one of our weaknesses is that we're so goal oriented and focused that we'll just constantly have goals for ourselves. And early on, you know, it's months into learning how to play and, uh, you know, I could finally get to relative minor chords and things like that. So I could probably play five chords by this time. We decided we had to play a school assembly. And so Andy and I set this thing up and we get the, you know, we get the gig booked before we really cleared it with everybody. <laughs> and so uh, our other guitar player, Mike, he was game for it. He was always game for anything. You know, Duncan, it was fine by him because he wasn't going to practice anyhow until the night before. And, uh, but we didn't really clear it with Seth. And Seth has always been, you know, even when he was a kid, was very uh, steady and pragmatic and practical and, 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 uh, you know, uh, what's the deliberate, you know? So Seth wanted to be prepared and he thought that we stunk. And he said, this is going to be a disaster. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> and, you know, and, and it's kind of always been in the nature of Nixon's head, you know, and dating back to proto Nixon's head. And really it's all tied to me and Andy is that we're really stubborn when we come up with an idea. And the two of us, you know, just said like, no, it's booked. We're doing it. And Seth said, no, I'm not going to play this show. And he was serious, you know, and he was a man of few words as it was, so he didn't have to go into great detail to be clear that he wasn't going to play the show. So Mike, uh, Mike Apice, he knew, he had another friend in our neighborhood in Parkwood, this guy named Joe, who I'd never met before, never heard of before, but Joe could play drums. And that was good enough. So we decided we were going to have, you know, Joe is going to learn our set. I think we had maybe one practice with him beforehand, and we were going to do... I think we actually had an original or two and we were doing some covers, you know, our, our big, our big uh, number was going to be, um, what is it? Bob O'Reilly. And uh, so Stuart, you know, who's still playing keyboards with us at that time, he couldn't really play that part. So he had it on a cassette tape, you know, with a mic on it and we were all set up for it. Of you him know, or just the opening of the original song? Of the song. opening of the original song you put on a loop. And... <laughs> So, you know, he's got that thing and we're all queued up. We've got this guy, Joe, who we'd never met until like, you know, a day or two so before the show. you're standing in front of the band, listening to the loop, waiting for your part uh, to come in. Waiting for our in. part to come in. And we just blew it like on all levels, you know, and all the like, all the big, you know, Daughtry-esque kind of things that Andy had cooked up. Everything was out of sync. Power cords out of sync. It was terrible. Uh, yeah, that was our debut. And, you know, after, and Seth actually, he... Uh, give him credit, Seth, you know, he made it clear that he wasn't going to play the show, but he was still in the band. So he said, I'll come. And he came and he set up his drums for Joe to play. And he stood there kind of off to the sides, you know, with his arms folded, looking at us like, I told you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Must have been a nice feeling for him watching yeah, the it was, whole thing I think it brought around. him out of his shell, yeah. <laughs> but you soldiered on from there. Yeah, we kept going. We We just couldn't see, like... We couldn't see how bad we were, which was great. You know, it's important. It's, important. It's an early, important thing. Uh, yeah, blinders to all, have. I on, hope yeah. all young people have that skill at some point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and probably like so. Then it was probably you know it wasn't too long after that disaster, we played. It was called the the Starlight Ballroom. So our goal, you know, early on, 
you know, we're reading, you'd be lucky if you could find, you know, three words on like punk rock in a Philadelphia newspaper. And, you know, there's every once in a while, there'd be this little blurb about the hot club, you know, and this, this is like 78 or so, 79. And we're reading about the hot club because, you know, we were talking earlier about WIOQ. And then, you know, following that, the next thing I, that I discovered was Lee Paris's show, you know, and that was great. I'd listen to that. It was on sometime late on like a Sunday night or some weird time. You know, I did that, just that classic kid thing of, you know, having the radio on low volume, listening to this stuff. And I used to keep a cassette player. You know, I didn't have a cassette player. I don't think it was actually in, it wasn't built in with the radio like it would eventually I would get. I had like a the old time flat cassette player that laid down flat and I had it next to my radio. And I remember every new song that would come on, I would hit record in case it was a good one. So, you know, like like uh, 30 Seconds Over Tokyo by Perubu came on. That was a keeper. I was just amazed by that song first time I heard it. But then other times you play something, you know, maybe like uh, Bauhaus or like Killing Joke. To this day, Killing Joke, first time I heard them, I want to throw up. I don't know why. I just don't like the sound of that band. And, you know, so if like a Killing Joke song would come up, I'd hit stop and rewind and wait for the next good song that would come you on. You and I were, Did you, you know, stuff like miles that? apart doing exactly the same thing. I could only get there with a with my portable radio in the window was the only place yeah. I could get it deeper in South Jersey. But I kept my tapes. I wasn't, I wasn't industrious enough uh-huh. to rewind. Some of the tapes that I still have, you can hear where I bailed, you <laughs> know, great. like a few measures in, like, eh, this isn't doing it for right. me. But the more I listened, the, the more I started to, I mean, I really, that, there was stuff that he played constantly that I just couldn't translate. Like, yeah. what is this? That's right. Only, only recently, looking, listening back to Pig Bag, Papa's uh-huh. got a brand new yep. Pig Bag, one of the, the big hits of that time in that, in that radio show. I, it was like nothing I ever heard before. Yeah. Listening to it again, I realized like, oh, this is like a an English, uh, you know, adaptation of of Afrobeat music. Yeah, basically. yeah. But at the time, uh, it, it suddenly laid a, a lie to all FM radio that like yes. that was the cutting edge of rock, and this is all rock is. This presented a whole other world, and they often talked about incredible shows that were going on at the Hot Club. Yep, yeah, yeah. yeah. Forget how we, what kind of crappy demo we put together. We put together something, you know, that was our version of a demo tape. We hadn't done anything in a studio yet. And we went in search of the Hot Club. And the Hot Club had just closed down, I guess. And we learned that the people who booked the Hot Club or ran the Hot Club, a guy named David Carroll and Bobby Startup, were now at this place, Starlight Ballroom. So we went to Starlight Ballroom. I'm just from, like, the middle of the day, probably, like, me, Andy, and Seth, and went there. How old are you at this point? 16, 17, you know, we're babies still. We're like juniors, I think, in high school. And we, you know, knock on the door and we're led back. And there, I just remember going down this hallway, you know, and the, and the Starlight Ballroom, I think, was in, in Fishtown. You know, way, back when Fishtown was really Fishtown, not like a new hip place. Yeah. And, um, and we go, we're led back and there, we go back to this office, you know, dimly lit. And this David Carroll guy came out who, I don't know how old he was, he's probably like 35, but you know, when you're that age, when you're 17, 35 seems like 65, and he had that worn down club look about him, you know, and like he just had this whole, but he had this whole mist about him, right? And it was, he took our demo tape and he was friendly enough, and we met Bobby Startup, you know, who was, again, like older than us, and he had, had this very, you know, cultured kind of like, goth rockabilly look back then you know with like the dyed hair all sticking up and you know he's kind of threatening but also like surprisingly nice to us because we were 
just complete idiots. <laughs> and they took our tape and they listened to it and they said, yeah, we'll, we'll get in touch with you. So they booked us for a show at the Starlight Ballroom. And I remember like around the same time, there was a show, you know, and we were just like too young to like, even like think about getting into clubs really. We didn't know about it. We were like nice kids. We didn't have like fake IDs. And, you know, there was a show with X and the Go-Go's and some other LA band, you know? And I was like, that looks cool, you know? This is gonna be fun playing the hot club. Or the, the the Starlight Ballroom. We get booked there and it was like, you know, a typical Tuesday night gig, which was, we were lucky to get that. And we were playing with some band called The Never, who I never heard of before or since. But they were this incredibly loud, like, all black guy punk rock band and, and you know we played our little rickety set and we had you know maybe four people there that was and, it all originals at this point or yeah pretty much all originals probably already yeah because yeah, early on we decided you know we wanted to be original we were really into being original and you know the one of the things that helped us be original too was i was never good enough at figuring out songs by ear so i'd maybe get halfway into learning a song and then just say oh fuck it i'm just gonna write my own song based on what i've figured out so far and that was kind of the beginning of songwriting but yeah so we played our set and then this band that never came on and there were maybe six people in the club by that time and they just were playing just ear splitting kind of like um like dictators type of you know that kind of like kind of punk but kind of just kind of rock you know yeah. and and that was our that was our first real club gig so we kind of felt like we we basically played the hot club we basically achieved that first big <laughs> goal of ours and we stunk and you know then we played I remember we played the east side club we opened for alan vega yeah for uh, those last you know year and a half in high school we started playing some club shows and that was really weird because we were so just so innocent and terrible yeah <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, in a way, that's a, that was a culture that allowed a young band to get some yeah. stage time, and maybe that's why when Nixon's head did finally yeah. hit the club scene, you were you were seasoned veterans at that point. Yeah, and just getting confidence to you know just as people, you know, because we're in school, not like the cool kids, but we could say like we'd come back on a you know come back to school on Monday, and we had something like extra under our belts we that we had a club you know. in Philly. Yeah, right. Yeah, so yeah. that was good.
section of the of the book that I've read ends with uh, the band going to college yeah. and uh, parting ways. You ended up heading to Evanston, I guess? Yeah, Chicago? it was at Northwestern, yeah. So I, I got, I got a, a whole scholarship to Northwestern, which I quickly blew because, you know, finally, like, released in the wild after all of my years of being, you know, <laughs> kind of controlled and molded and, you know, trying to be loved out of all my wild ways. As soon as I was out on my own, I was totally immature and unprepared for everything. And, you know, I remember the second day of, you know, the second day of college, you know, just meeting guys on campus and like, hey, you want to try this? Sure. Want to try this? Why not? You know, and, and just so within a short time. What, what sort of stuff are you trying? Oh, that? you know, pot. Like, so, so like I was a very, uh, very, very good boy. Uh, well, you had, you had so I had one episode happening in your in your house. Like, yeah. I think a lot of kids who, who see the scary side of it really do. Yeah. Uh, you know, rebel in the other direction. Yeah. Yeah. So my father was a mess. Uh, so, you know, kind of growing up, he was a good negative role model on many levels and I really took that to heart and I still believe that and uh, it was it was almost kind of helpful to have him be such a mess and you know I had one episode one time I got you know drunk and high in middle school and I got caught my mom was just so against that stuff and you know she was threatening to like make me drink a fifth of vodka to teach me a lesson and you know luckily before she got to that lesson I, I got my hand caught in the car door and I didn't even notice I was so drunk until like I couldn't you know it was like a slapstick thing I couldn't walk away from the car and it looked like my hands in the door so all kind of stupid stuff so from that point on though like after eighth grade I just decided I'm going straight I'm not doing anything so but, but I got to college and then I was trying stuff you know so that was interesting because that was the first time when more Led Zeppelin songs beside like communication breakdown started to sound good and that was <laughs> the first the time speaking. yeah yeah and, and this is you know this is when like now I start to understand what all those cool kids got into like you know with yes in mild doses you know I still never got into like tales from topographic oceans or whatever you know the big landmark albums are but you know yours is no disgrace now was was better than I thought it was uh, so that that were some interesting years but at the same time then uh, you know, those first couple of years in college, which was really just Jim's, Jim's wild playtime, uh, unfortunately from all practical reasons, but on a, on a positive note, it gave me, I had two years of really um, letting my mind explore things. I had this, this beginning of sophomore year. Uh, something I'm working on writing about is uh, this one good friend of mine, my, my best friend the first couple of years there in school. He lived... Uh, in the Chicago area and I went to visit his home before the school year started and one one night we went to the mall and you know his kind of his childhood mall and he took me to the record store where one of his high school buddies was working and the kid said you know kind of like under under you know under his voice you now come back about 15 minutes before closing time and I'll give you, you know, when we close up, I'll give you 15 minutes, like, free shopping spree. Where, and so it turns out they were kind of under their expected quota of stolen records for that month. So he said we had 15 minutes to take whatever we wanted. And so when he you know, pulled down that the metal grate... And we had we just went through the store, and you know, uh, my friend Carl pulled out every like greatest hits record, every '60s kind of collection that he could find, 
And I went for every double album I could find. So I got like Pills Second Edition, <laughs> Captain Beefhearts, you know, Trout Mask, Mask Replica, Replica, Miles Davis Bitches Brew. So the two of us, we went back to his parents' house that night with a stack of like 70 records. And his mom, you know, saw us like, where'd you get all those records? And, you know, he's like, I borrowed them from Paul, you know, or whoever the kid was. And so that was an education in itself. I remember, you know, then, you know, that night we were up in his, his childhood bedroom listening to these records and we, you know, we're back at school, like getting high as we could. And, you know, Frownland comes on and, you know, and the <laughs> Trout Mask Replica. And it was like, this is like something else that, you know, I didn't even know exists. I mean, for, I was already had my, my Perubu records. I already gotten into some weird stuff. But Frownland in particular, everything was on the surface. It was like, there was no depth to it. And I love that. I just love the fact that it was all sitting there on the table for me. And there was no, like, no mystery to it. No, no secret language. It was just like, here it is. If you like it, great. If you don't, tough. I asked for that record for my birthday, being a double record. Uh-huh. You know, I, I needed to uh, get the most out of his possible. And my brother, my older brother, got it for me. Neat. And uh, I remember listening to it, like, that night after dinner, after a few minutes, uh, my brother just looked at me and said, are you really enjoying this? <laughs> and he never joined me in yeah. the love of Captain Beefheart, but I think it was Doc at the radar station oh, God, and that yeah. appearance on Saturday Night yeah. Live that yeah. first pulled me in. Yeah. 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 What's that, that song? Uh, she's not bad. She's just, what's that, um, what's that song? Is that a Dirty Blue Jean? Yeah, Dirty Blue That's like the greatest song ever to me. Like just scientifically, if there was like a science of rock, to me, that song's like the oral equivalent of time-lapse photography. Like, if, <laughs> if I were to make a video, it would be somehow, like, that would be the only way to represent it. Just the way the, the, the guitars just kind of, like, mushroom out from, you know, from those weird little blues licks, and then they become something grander. It it's always blows my mind. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, there, there was a sense about that record that it was mysterious, and it, it was, a, in some ways, it was a, a mystery that was never going to be fully resolved. Right. yeah. You know? <laughs> Um, making love to a vampire with yes. a monkey on my knee. Yep. Uh, the, the beautiful uh, Ashtray di- heart. Yeah. yeah. The, the, what's that one about the yeah diamonds? A, is a, a carrot is carrot as close is... as a rabbit ever gets yeah. to a diamond. Yep. I think all that stuff was. Yep. Uh, I was uh, still in high school at the time and and was uh, you know mind expanding yeah. for sure. Yeah, so those college years, those first couple college years were very good for mind expansion and expanding my record collection. And then, you know, we'd come home in the summers and we kind of kept the dream of this band alive. This is you and Andy. Where'd Andy end up going So to Andy went to George Washington University in D.C. Where and that's you, where, where he met... dreamed of going together at one yeah, point. Yeah, we, we actually went there to... We went to visit together and uh, and that's where we bought our first big punk records. He bought uh, Nevermind the Bollocks and I bought the first Clash record. Yeah. And we went home and traded notes and you know so that became real you know touchstone for us yeah there's a nice piece really uh unwinding the first clash record yeah uh which was the american version rather than the uk version yeah yeah, yeah. i still you know i still just uh you know you talk about i was talking earlier about it was milner from uh, american graffiti and to me joe strummer's like the the next milner in my life <laughs> Yeah. Both like uh, you know, or like the 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 brief era when the Fonz wore the uh, the windbreaker instead of the leather jacket. That was that was the best Fonz. But uh, <laughs> you were uh, talking. Uh, well, in, in the in the book, you you, yeah. you, you to, you're somewhat askance at the uh, sort of uh, retro rockabilly scene that came up later. And when oh, I God, still yeah. see that sort of hot rodden subculture, I always think like that's what the Fonz has wrought. You know? Yes. <laughs> and it's a shame because there's so much good 
behind rockabilly that I know is good. You know, and for me, like, X did the best with all that. You know, Billy Zoom, again, is one of those guys to me who could do no wrong. Yeah. You know, he took all that cool guy 50 stuff to where it needed to go. But again, because I was always growing up being a snob, the songs about, like, chicks and cars were just an immediate turnoff. It was like getting back to, like, squeezing the lemon. You know, and I, I just, I always wanted to be, like, apart from that world. And that's kind of like, you know, my mom's influence, probably. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting. You've, uh, uh, over the years in, in Rocktown Hall, uh, really concretely, but also in, in there there was a certain lore that came around the head, and there was the, the head newsletter. Yeah. You have a very rigorous and precise sort of aesthetic of rock and roll, and it's not too conservative. It's not like very narrow, right. but but there are there are seems to be very you know real rules that can be broken, and and uh, you know <laughs> there are things, especially in today when everybody wants to like everything and be positive about yeah. everything. You you you're very vocal about your dislikes. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I you know I I mean I know I'm a little bit of a control freak, and so I like to, and I also you know kind of like one of the fascinations with rock and roll for me has always been. What's that? What's that song? Uh, it's called "Private World" or something from the from the New York Dolls album. Yeah, you know that whole notion of having your little clubhouse. Like to me, like having the band. Me, the band is a clubhouse for me. You know, it's these guys I've been playing with. They're my best friends. They're my oldest friends, and we have this whole notion of who we are and what we're striving for. And we'll be like 70 still trying to attain it. But, you know, there's records that, you know, that nobody else gives a crap about that we hold in high esteem. You know, the undertones positive touch is is to me, you know, one of the great ones. The third album. Yeah, the third album. And and is great. And and objectively, the first two are the best. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the, the, the first one, just the undertones, unbelievable. The second one, more songs about uh, Chocolate and Girls. I love it. It's one of the greatest side two albums of all time. It's just you get to side two and you never want it to end. Like it's actually, I have to get through side one, but then side two, it just takes off. But Positive Touch, it's like, to me, it's their clubhouse album. You know, it's you just hear them in their own little world and they're doing what they want to do and they don't give a shit about anything else. And that's like the kind of thing that I get really attracted to, you know, both as a listener and a you know a person making music. So trying to get to that spot is, is really Steve special. Is the only way to produce that record? I'm trying to remember who produced it. No, it's it. uh, it's Roger Bacherian, who is Nick Lowe's engineer. So Bacherian, he produced the the first three Undertones albums. But he's the engineer in all those classic Costello records, okay. you know, and all those other, like, productions that Nick Lowe did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he's, uh, you know, again, so, like, you know, Rocktown Hall, I tracked him down once and got to interview him. And, again, it was like, you know, I don't know who the last person was, the previous person was, who wanted to interview Roger Bacherian, <laughs> but I was thrilled to get to talk to him and talk to him about, you know, making positive touch and making you know get happy which is my you know elvis Costello's get happy is my number one album of all time you know again to me that is another one of those private world albums it's got all this stuff going on in the in the corners and the speakers and i'm not a headphones guy but when i listen to it in open air it's just such a deep you know overbearing album with all these weird echoes and stuff and I just I'm fascinated by that stuff. Talk for a second about Elvis Costello because he yeah. he was really like a, a front line uh, obsession for me. 
through you know the first ten years of his career yeah. or so. But uh, over time, I, 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 you know, lost the interest, you know, lost the absorption in them. And their records, I, I kind of don't return to that much. Those early yeah. records, they were really for that time for me. But yeah. But I, I, I recognize them as still being beautiful productions and everything. But, but tell me your your take on uh, yeah, Elvis Costello. So for me, he's kind of like he was like my you know my real life Beatles. You know, so I got into the Beatles after the Ed Sullivan. I don't have that experience. But when I saw him on Saturday Night Live that first time, I just couldn't believe how, like, fired up I felt. You know, and same thing, there was that, that weird video show, Rock World, that Andy and I, we were just... We Let's all go rock oh, world! Oh, you remember it, of yes! Of course, Channel 29. Yeah. And, <laughs> <laughs> and the best for us was the intro. There was a band called Supercharge. And they were all like kind of thrusting forward and at the same time up at the monitors. You know, to this day, Nixon's head guys, we still can look at each other sometimes and go into supercharge mode. It's just like one of our many in jokes. But yeah, Elvis Costello for me was he had, you know, he was always kind of like, well, he was touching on Beatles records constantly. So that was an easy sell. And he also touched on a lot of those early Stones singles that I love, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, this year's model and stupid girl, you know, the breaks are the same songs, you know, so yeah. it was kind of cool, like being able to spot the influences early on. And then he had this really tight, versatile band. So again, one of my early influences was the band. And, you know, the band in the movie, The Last Waltz, which was also another big turn on for me in, in the early days of teen years you know, the band was able to back up anybody. And yeah. they, you know, they made, in my opinion, you know, best version of Caravan with Van Mars and the band. The only thing they couldn't help was Neil Diamond. He stinks, you know, in any setting. Uh, but <laughs> Huge fan of the Bang singles. Uh, yes, I'll, that's, I'll that's great. I'm with you. I'm with you on that. Yeah, I'm with you on that stuff. But that, yeah, that, that whatever that album was. That was it the was, Beautiful uh, Noise album. Yeah, Beautiful album Noise. I, I bought a copy of that, and that was a letdown. The sound yeah. that I love. <laughs> But yeah, so to me, the attractions, they kind of had that ability that the band had kind of turned me on to, you know, and they were were just three people. They were a really tight little unit. And then, you know, Bruce Thomas, the bass player, like when I listen to music, I often focus on the bass first. And he, to me, is like up there with James Jamerson and Paul McCartney. He just has like open access like when he's going through the hallways of bass playing they just like they don't have to see his id he can do whatever he wants and he seems to pull it off i never hear you know there's so many songs like uh i don't know like there's a bunch of songs on get happy these like minute and 30 long songs that aren't much of a song love for tender yeah, yeah. almost beaten to the punch you know mm-hmm. it's just one chord basically yeah. but if you just focus on his bass it's a world of its own i'm and imagining him on i, I don't want to go to chelsea really, yeah really yeah rumbling through yeah that whole thing yeah yeah so yeah so costello he has that and the other thing he taps into along with kind of my beatles love is that he has this like kind of formalism of those you know, those Dionne Warwick records I grew up with, all the Burt Backrack, you know, Hal David stuff with Dionne Warwick. So he always had kind of like touches of that, you know, even before I heard the, you know, the the live, the, the live Stiffs album. You could already tell like that he knew those kinds of records too. Because I don't know what to do with myself. Yeah, 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 right. So to me, he was almost like, you know, my kind of British invasion side as a kid and my mom's tastes in like this 60s, you know, like rhythm and blues kind of more contemporary city stuff. He kind of like 
combine them. And so it was a real from, natural for from me. From album to album, for a string of albums, there was a real sense of anticipation, yeah. a, a sense of growth. And, yeah. Uh, uh, I remember reading the long New York Times review of Imperial Bedrooms. Yeah. Uh, I think Masterpiece Question Mark yeah, was right. the ad. Yeah. And, uh, I guess that's still a very exciting yeah. record, I guess. And he's also, too, probably the first artist where I had, like, my, you know, what's that Judas thing with Dylan when he went electric? Mm-hmm. My first personal, like, Judas moment was when he did, you know, when he dropped the attractions. I was really unhappy about King of America, even though I've begrudgingly come around on that album, and I know there are a couple great songs on that. But I just love the attractions. And yeah. then he went on to do like Spike and Mighty Like a Rose, which I still call Mighty Like a Turd. <laughs> and I was, for years, there was a long stretch where I couldn't even like listen to his music. I had to put them aside. Now, I've gotten past it now. I just read his, his book recently and uh-huh. I fully enjoyed it. Yeah. Have you, have you listened to the, the recent Costello records? Are you, are you up to date with him? I, I like listen to them once or twice. I haven't really liked anything in a long time. I saw him at the Tower a couple of years ago, and he did one of those you know spinning songbook shows, and it was great. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the new records, I just can't. He seems to be wanting to do, you know. I think this is a hazard of any musician, just about anybody. I mean, some people like you know, like a person like Captain Beefheart who has almost no influences beyond whatever got him started, and they just kept culturing it. That's different. But I find a lot of people, and Costello's really suffered from this, is you start out and you want to be some way, but because you're not really able to be the people you want to be, you naturally have this weird you know, way of kind of falling around what you want to be, and it's exciting. And then if you, when you start getting good enough to be what you want to be, then you're not, you're just not, you know, it's like if you want to be Aretha Franklin and you're 19, you're never going to be Aretha Franklin, but you might be something good, you know, that falls off to the side. But then you're like 30 and you're finally good enough to, you know, be Aretha Franklin, but you're not Aretha Franklin. (laughs) And I kind of feel like that's how Elvis Costello has been with all of his pursuits is he's, he's like good enough, you know, to not really hit the mark that he's looking for anymore. Yeah, it's almost better when you're not good enough. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it's almost like your personal stamp is part of those, part of those uh, weaknesses or, or yeah. whatever. It's somebody, I remember somebody reviewing Lou Reed and saying Lou Reed was a great guitar player until he learned how to play guitar. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's um, another great touch too. <laughs> Oh uh-huh. 
when did you finally come together as Nixon's head? So it was probably around 83, 84. I remember I was in, I was still at Northwestern. I walked into a, a friend's room and he had a book on his, on his bed called Nixon's Head. It had like this psychedelic collage of Nixon's head. And I was well, very. Do you remember what the book is about? Yeah, I, I it was actually. So it, was a, it was written in the late. It was written before his first first time he was elected, and it was a guy saying, based on his career to date, you know, in in, in the public, this is a crazy man. You shouldn't elect him. That was the gist of the book, and um, so you know, I just looked at the book and I just started you know cackling and uh, and I just thought like you know I remember I called Andy like that week and like. I think we know the name of the band. It's got to be Nixon's Head, you know, and that, that's how we came up with the name. So that, you know, that summer, I think we formally became Nixon's Head. And uh, so like 84 was, I think, our first actual Nixon's Head show. We played at Grendel's Lair. And so, uh, so you when, were home from the summer from, from college? Well, or? at this point, then I was home because I, I'd, I'd, you know, basically flunked out after two years. Oh, I didn't really. Uh, yeah. So a, it was a dirty it, secret in the slate yeah, yeah, biography. Yeah, yeah. Don't, don't do like I did. Uh yeah, so I, I, I really, uh, really, you know, took advantage of that scholarship. Uh, yeah, so I was home, and then I was gonna, I was gonna carry on a temple from that point forward, um, which I did. Um, but yeah, so when I got back home, so now I'm back home, Seth is back home, and Mike Fingeroff, who is, who is in Nixon's head by this point, Mike Fingeroff's another one of our childhood friends from our school. Uh, Mike has joined us, and he's going to school locally. He made a tour of uh, not the big five, but probably about five local schools <laughs> himself in his early years in college. Uh, and so, you know, now we've got three guys local. Andy's at GW. Oh, and a fourth guy who we went to high school with, this guy, Steve Sagan. And Sagan was always, when we were in high school, he was more a part of the cool burnout crowd. And he was into, like you know, like Zeppelin and Hendrix and all the all that kind of stuff. So he was in this kind of rival band when we were in high school. But then he kind of got turned on to new wave stuff, too. And he was part of our crowd early on. And then Andy's in GW, where he met Mike Frank. So there was this period for the next two years as we were becoming Nixon's Head, where we had five members at any given time. And depending on who was free or not, the lineup might have had Mike Frank on bass with Mike Fingeroff on guitar or Steve Sagan on bass with Mike Frank on guitar. So he was the swing man, Frankie. He would come up with Andy from Washington. So that's how we, we kind of got started the, their last two years at GW. That's where we really started to, to play and you know, make real recordings and put out you know, our first record and all that. What, what year was the first record in? I want to say 85. So we'd only played a handful of shows. And again, at this point, we were still highly uncool. And we knew that that was, you know, that was the way it was going to be. And we were fine with that. I remember, uh, I remember buying the record uh-huh. uh, just because of the, the psychedelic cover. It yeah. seemed enough like a, a Mitch Easter record yeah. in packaging that <laughs> I would be interested in. It said Philadelphia Band. Uh-huh. And I had the, the four-song IP. I, I bought it at the... Uh, the Sound of Market that was at 13th yeah. and Walnut, I oh, think, man, at those time. places were great. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so we decided early on, and we were always, because we were these nerdy guys sitting in our bedrooms, you know, by ourselves most of our lives, we wanted to make records. And so we decided early on, 
you know, we're never going to like be that cool and get this big following. We're not going to just play live and become like the Grateful Dead or something and have people, you know, flock to us with no product. <laughs> so let's pool our money and make a record. And that's what we did. We went to a studio that used to, it was down at uh, like Society Hill Towers, star recordings, David Starobin. His brother was in the American Dream or one of those, you know, kind of legendary 60s Philadelphia bands. And his studio is kind of like an offshoot of those Sound of Philly places. So like, you know, when the backup singers on the the TSOP records would make their little record, they'd go to Star Recording. So it was great. It had like, it still had, it was a tube place, you know, and with big black knobs. So it was like... Everything that we'd grown up, you know, salivating over while looking at the cover, you know, the inside part of, you know, Let It Be. And so we got to make our first record in a studio like that with the big, you know, the big open floor and the hardwood floors and all that stuff. And we we pulled our money and we said, let's, you know, we're making four songs. We bashed it out in a weekend. And uh, and so that became our calling card. That was the first. Now we could go to the clubs and say, we've got a record coming out. We've got a record it's in stores and it was getting reviews and it got it got a really nice write-up in Spin, which blew us away, which was still an early magazine. It yeah. was just had just come out. Do you remember what they said? You must. Uh, I remember we had we got the call. Like they actually called us and said, you know, we wanna we wanna do a review of your record and we need a picture of you. We need a photo. We had no band photo. We were <laughs> you know, again, we were idiots and we didn't like standing in front of cameras and all. So Jay Schwartz uh, went out with us. We went out. I think we went out to our maybe to our old school or in that area in Jenkintown. How do you know if Jay Schwartz? He went on to be a film yeah. curator with the Secret Cinema. Jay's incredible. So Jay yeah. was like kind of one of Jay and David uh, Snyder were kind of like our our godfathers, you know. So Jay, you know, quickly said, "Well, I know how to take pictures." So he took us out and he you know took a picture of us like jumping off of a wall or something. You know, it's kind of some kind of 60s, you know, like, uh, you know, what's the, the Beatles movie kind of, you know, one of those kind of deals. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's all blurry and stuff. So it got published in Spin along with this cool little review talking about, you know, I don't know, some, you know, tight power, you know, blah, 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 all the kind of stuff that we had aspired to. It's really cool, really nice and exciting. Um, and I remember, what was her name? The girl from the, the <laughs> not the... the not the Go-Go's. What was the other big band? Uh, the Bangles? The Bangles. The the one with, like, the big eyes that everybody had the crush on. Oh, yeah. She was on the cover of it in a bathing suit. Susanna you know. Hoff. Susanna Hoff. I'm sure I had yeah. that issue. <laughs> and, you know, but our to us, our little, like, one-inch review is more exciting than Susanna Hoff's in the bathing suit. That's how, that's how excited we were. Even with it. a young man's hormones. Even with a young man's hormones. Yeah. We were, we were more attractive. <laughs> so yeah, so that, that was, that was cool. So that's kind of what got us going. And from that point on, you know, suddenly we were a band with a record and a band that, you know, was, we started getting played on XPN and that's where we met all the guys who would become the Wishniaks, you know, Andy Chalfin, Dave Frank, Jim Moran, they were all DJs on XPN back then. So we'd meet them, we'd hang out with them and party with them. And, you know, that was kind of our first like entree into the Philadelphia music scene. Then at Temple, I met Andy Bresnan and uh, Seth and I played with Junior Mints for a year. So it was kind of That's fun right. to be doing that on the side and getting to meet a whole other crowd of people that I otherwise would have not come in contact with. So that was really how it got going, and it was, it was really fun and exciting, and it was, uh, 
you know, kind of cool to finally get to that point that I wanted to be at, you know, for all those years. Now, of course, you know, I, I then wanted to make enough money and, you know, do records and then eventually, you know, become like this country gentleman like I imagine John Fogarty was. I never got to all those points in life. Uh, I've had to actually work for that as a day job stuff. I wanted to stop for a second, though, yeah. and really talk about this is when I sort of first discovered yeah. the Philadelphia seat and I uh, started coming into the city and seeing live bands. It was Philadelphia was off the national radar completely. There were certain towns, you know, Minneapolis, Athens, Georgia, where, you know, rock bands seemed to get noticed and get signed, you know, at least, you know, small labels and that kind of thing. But Philadelphia had an, a real wealth of talent and a real... <laughs> A, a real quirky batch of bands uh, that that never really made the, it, it struggled to make that that national breakthrough. Baby Flamehead yep. uh, that Andy Bresnan was in yep. was a band that I that I thought was spectacular back in the day, and and I guess the Dead Milkmen yeah. were were the, the most successful at sort of breaking out of the scene. But they were all playing gigs together in the same circuit that, that you were as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, early on, so Dead Milkmen and Ben Vaughn Combo, you know, they were the two bands that were like cool who were actually bigger than just Philadelphia and were they really had their shit together you know they were just so so good at what they did and they got, had real management early real on management well. early yeah. on and they had a you know they had a, a whole like that whole you know that they had like the rock superpowers vibe about them each 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 unit and so it was really cool early on getting to do opening slots for them you know and so we'd get on these bills and maybe you know dead milkman would have us and you know um electric love muffin you know so then we got to meet them and they were cool guys you know also like kind of similar you know things going on in their minds and the way they were going about their business sky grits who i, I mean they couldn't stay in tune to save their life but they were like to me they were uh, you know, kind of this better version of like how meat puppets were at their best. You know, they're this weird, psychedelic, folky kind of band. Uh, so there are all those bands like that. But Philadelphia never had, we never had our version of, you know, I don't know who it would be, but, you know, the Rodney Biggenheimer kind of guy. Or, you know, there's never like a champion in the in the mainstream for the Philadelphia scene. Well, there, there were occasionally local music shows that happened on MMR and things like that, but they seemed, you know, really happy to ignore. It was all that Steve Mountain-based stuff. It was, you know, the That's Hooters, right? right? Yeah. Anything anything was in that Steve Mountain Brewery camp. Brewery View and Brewery uh, Tommy View. Conwell. Tommy Conwell, yeah. Oh, back in the day, the, the, the Mountain Brothers owned uh, <laughs> uh, three clubs yep. that were, the, you know, the three of the... They had the best sound systems yes, yeah. and everything. Yeah, they were great and, clubs. And, and the, the, the bands they managed worked that circuit yeah. you know, tirelessly. Yeah. But there were a lot of bands that were also really kept out of that and, and uh, you know, weren't welcomed into yeah. the world so much. So I don't, you know, I don't know exactly why it was, but Philadelphia never seemed to click. You know, I remember there would be, uh, you know, like you were saying, there were these different pockets, the, you know, Athens, Georgia. Who even knew there was an Athens, Georgia? <laughs> and, you know, but in the, like the, you know, whatever those magazines were back then, some of the times there'd be a little section with different regions. Boston always had a regional write-up. Yeah, like Boston you know, Report. Right, you know, yeah. uh, you know, the big takeover used to have little regional things. And, and, you know, but Philadelphia never got that regional section for some reason.
you've talked about the about being very goal oriented. It, yeah. it seems like I remember back in the day there was a there was a real a real goal set to to uh, to make a, a national record with with the band and the band uh, you know struggled to make that goal. Is that was that something that I, I was imagining or is that really part no, of it? No, yeah, yeah, because we had this weird you know between being ridiculously goal oriented and ridiculously naive and not wanting to work with anybody it's a wonder we managed to have these goals i mean we didn't want help from anybody anybody who wanted to like try to help us it's like yeah thank you you know when when peter grant shows up or brian epstein then we'll take on some help but it's terrible you know looking back and i i wish we'd been a little more trusting of others a little more open but at the same time you know it kind of gets back to that we wanted to have the clubhouse. We wanted to be yeah. have our hands in every piece of the pie. You and, know? And, and then again, yeah. uh, these bands that did make a big national contract, especially at that time, it seemed yeah. like the first thing to do would be to saddle them with some awful right. production that did not understand what the band was about. Del Fuegos, remember them? Yeah. They had that record came out. They all of a sudden had that big 80s drum sound. And big that was 80s, like, you uh, know, the big 80s drum sound was like, keep us far away from that i don't want anything to do with that <laughs> and this the spirit just yeah. really seemed dampened yep. by by yeah yeah and and uh, you know x like there was a big push oh, to make yeah. x a national band and they gave oh, they gave them i think it was Grand or whatever that I think album it was, was dawkins producer yeah that yeah yeah that, that was a disaster yeah and, and yeah. Uh, it did nothing to expand on what was great about x it was yeah. all about trying to make them a completely different thing yep. yeah so was was there a, a real like three-year plan for nixon's head in which the band was going to break up if they didn't make it, national acclaim. It, I mean, we didn't like plan it that way, but we drove ourselves so hard, and we got to a point. You know, there came a point where we kept pushing, and we felt like we were getting closer to where we wanted to be musically. We were getting closer to our positive touch, which was, you know, we should have known was a bad thing because there's no giant positive touch that makes a mark on society. Uh, let, so, me just, let me just yeah. say, too, let me just roll back. Uh, Nixon's head, for me, you know, I think everybody, you know, growing up has that band that really, like, local band that, wow, everybody should have seen them. Like, some of the most exciting rock and roll shows I ever think I, I went to were seeing, like, Nixon's head at Bacchanal. There was an incredible oh, spirit, an incredible sound. There was incredible... A sense of a camaraderie on stage. Yeah. It was a, a really memorable batch of songs. I can still probably remember, you know, ninety percent of the songs yeah. of the playlist at that time. Uh, the band was uh, in in the fashion that the Who were, were the, this real powerhouse, Thanks. you know, yeah. big guitar sound band that it was uh, just completely lovable to me. At the, you That's know. nice. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean we loved what we were doing, and Bacchanal was was my favorite place to play. I thought that was the best place. That was where Nixon's head was, you know, the most Nixon's head because we were playing through our crappy PVPA system, which we still have in our rehearsal spot, all you know stained with you know you know bong water and beer and whatever else spilled on it over the years. In a dangerous part of town. Yeah, in a dangerous part of town. Just this little wooden room, you know, real simple place. Uh, also with a with a, uh, with a a uh, sort of three-dimensional mural yes. of uh, muscular naked women yes, along the wall. Yes, right, there. right. Yeah, with like Brillo pads or something used for, for certain, you know, for the pubic hair and all. Yeah. <laughs> and we used to, before all shows at Bacchanal, our ritual is we would go to Taco House 
which was this cheap, you know, place where you get a giant meal for like two dollars and fifty cents, which was you know something we a could real, afford back a real then. Real special strain of Mexican food. <laughs> yeah, a real special there. strain, right? <laughs> we go to Taco House, and then we you know set up our we set up our PA and all. And before people came in, there was a bathroom right behind the stage area. There was no like band room at Bacchanal. You were just there. So we'd all go in, you know, those of us who partook would go in the bathroom and have our ritual, you know, our ritual smoke fest before the show. And we would just get on stage, you know, really high, no, no monitors, nothing kind of in our way, no sound man. And it was just us. And, you know, you talk about kind of like the, or I'm talking about the things that we really aspired to. That's where it all hit its mark. Really well rehearsed as well. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, we tried to. We... So we, and again, because, you know, so at that time we had no life beside the band. We didn't have, you know, few of us, if any of us had like real girlfriends back then. Uh, we had crappy jobs. And so we'd play a show and we, our rehearsal studio was down the street from where we lived in Maniunk. And you know, four of the five of us lived in a house together and kind of this like, you know, deranged monkeys kind of house that we lived in <laughs> and we would just go down the street to our rehearsal place at, you know 2 30 in the morning sometimes and just keep the buzz going you know it's like great show let's start rehearsing for the next one it, it was a uh, you know it was times we will never get back as adults it was really really fun yeah yeah <laughs> but but then at some point you know i guess you know yeah. uh, where was the end of it at that point yeah so we we did these you know we did the two records we put out ourselves so the first one is so the uh, first one's the doug factor it was a four song ep what is the origin of the doug factor yeah so that sounds like an inside joke yeah it is cracking up these so, Nixon's head. so there was some kind of i forget what it was called but there was some kind of factor that the grateful dead talked about that they had that you know with the whatever factor and it was that like certain strain of people who would be into the Grateful Dead. And we had a friend named Doug. And one day we were talking about, it's like, you know, our target audience is all the Dougs in the world. This is a kid I went to, to Northwestern with. And he was this high energy guy, you know, who liked 60s music and punk rock. And he was just like all fired up, but also a little bit depressed at all times. You know, he's like the perfect storm for us. And so I think it was Mike Frank said like, you know, we need the Doug factor. That was like, that was our version of whatever this factor was that the Grateful Dead had. So that that's why that one was called the Doug factor. I had no idea it was yeah. inspired by the dead. Who yes, believe it yes. or not, right. And then, so that one, you know, had, had like, I, I mean, just some of those songs I really remember, you know, it was great because that was the first time we got like, pretty good at doing what we wanted to do you know because we had these the proto nixons had the zone which was pretty bad and very highly derivative of stuff that we loved and you know like i can listen to it and i'm just embarrassed but that's fine you know i mean you should be embarrassed what you did when you're 16 17 <laughs> but the the that first nixons head ep we were you know stood behind it there's a song bad vibes you know talk about like my early songwriting i was trying to figure out wake me shake me by the four tops <laughs> and you know i could only get so far before i threw up my hands but i was like i think i got enough that i can kind of turn this into my own song and that became one song and then they can't touch us they really can't remember. touch us right yeah. it was like you know how can i do something like whatever that last train to clarksville you know kind of like something like that riff that we can kind of make into our own you know and that was kind of our early you know I mean, to this day, we're always playing like connect the dots. That's like a big game for us, and we have no shame about it. And that's, you know, it's part of the joy of music. So, 
Yeah, uh, Still was a song. I remember I was in Italy. It was after that sophomore year when I kind of bottomed out at Northwestern. And my grandmother took me to Italy with her. We had family there. And uh, she kind of like gave me this chance to like kind of get some, you know, just get away from all the people in the family who were down on me and get that, get away from myself. At least that's how I took it. It was a beautiful couple of weeks in Italy. Yeah, I just remember I, I got really sick and I was in the mountains in this town in Abruzzo where my, my family's, you know, ancestral home was. And I'm in this mountain town and there was this weird radio station was playing a loop of like about 12 punk songs, you know, and it had pop tones by, you know, by Pill and Non-Alignment Pact by Perubu. And those two in particular, you know, I keep hearing them all over and over and uh, Personality Crisis, you know, by New York Dolls. And uh, what's that song? Hey, Captain Say What by, what's his name? Uh, uh, Captain, Captain Sensible, Sensible, right? The Damned. So it was this loop of weird songs. You know, from that, there was a song called Still on the first Nixon's Head record, you know? Okay. It was kind of like, so that's kind of like the way we, we put stuff together back then. And, and yeah, that record did great. It sold out its thousand copies. So when it came time to make the second record, Traps, Buckshot, and Pelt, which was our, again, you know, stupid inside jokes that we lived by is the frontiersman equivalent of sex, drugs, and rock and roll to us. Because oh, okay. uh, I forget what it, what it was, but we somehow got into this whole, this whole notion of like uh, suede coats with fringe, kind of like what Dennis Hopper's wearing, you know, an easy rider. <laughs> so also maybe a band influence? Yeah, the band, yeah. kind of, we were getting into the band, you know, kind of pulling out the band records and... Uh, and uh, what's the other album? Meat Puppets, Up on the Sun. That was a big oh, influence yeah. at that time. There's this period, Mike Fingeroff and I, that was the first time Fingeroff started writing songs with me. Mm-hmm. So, and he had this great knack of coming up with these weird riffs based on his particular guitar style. And he, at the time, didn't know how to make full songs, so he'd just kind of give me a box of riffs and say, what can we do with this? And that, So a lot of the songs for that came through that. I always um, imagined he was the secret element in some way. He was. He's he's incredible. Uh, I mean, so he's another guy. You know, I met him also in third grade. He's two years younger, so he's your age. Okay. Uh, and Mike and I again hit it off early on. We were all friends through childhood. You had and a lovely sister, Mary. I think. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Mary and Patricia, another younger yeah. sister, yeah. and Patricia's still around. Comes to shows. So Mike, yeah, Mike was just this, and Mike is about. He's he's like deathly shy but he's about the funniest person i know and he just has the weirdest sense of humor and he'll just come up with these little like you know little things out of the blue and uh so in the band his humor kind of got worked in in ways that you know outsiders wouldn't have seen but we knew he would throw in these little guitar licks that he knew would make us crack up and they did and they you know sometimes they were like the main lick in a song and it was really fun, you know, having him in the band and, and having him be part of that. He, he was like a, kind of the secret sauce early on with us. <laughs> yeah, so that, yeah, that was those early days. Yeah, so and then we put out the second record. And of course, because the first one sold out, we got to make 2,000 copies. Yeah. We sold 1,000 of the second one, Ooh. too. So we, we The had second a, one is, I mean, it sort of falls between a full length and a... Yeah, that is, was is seven it, songs. So seven we, songs. we didn't quite have enough money to make a full length. Uh-huh. Um, which was probably good because, again, we weren't, you know, for all the stuff we w- were trying to do back then on limited budgets, I don't know if we would have been able to pull off, you know, the next five songs as well as we would have liked to. It's a shame, though, because we had some good songs that didn't make the cut. Yeah, so that one we recorded in Maryland at a studio in uh, Rockville, Maryland. And that guy was great, that engineer. Steve? Steve, yeah, Steve Carr. Yeah, I was... He'd done a bunch of, he like... He did Tommy Keene, I Yes, yeah, yeah, that was yeah. one of his big productions back then, right. He was great. He was really quiet. He kind of let us do our thing. 
you know, let us play around, and we had doing all kind of nonsense in the studio. Hit and run studios. Hit and run, right. Yeah. <clears throat> That's right. And uh, I remember one time we were doing a song. Actually, this is for a later single we did, talking about Finger Off, and we are playing this song, and it was a song kind of based on the Clash, like Give Him Enough Rope, that style Clash. And then the solo comes up, and Mike Fingeroff's in the studio putting out the solo, putting down the solo, and Steve looks at us like, are you going to let him play that? And we're like, yeah, that's, that's Fingeroff. He's like, it sounds like a fucking, it's like fucking, uh, what do you say, Almond Brothers, Leonard Skinner. And it's like, yeah, that's Fingeroff. Fingeroff cut his teeth playing Southern Rock. And he's like, you're going to let him play a solo like that on this song? And we're like, yeah, that's him. You know, that's who we are. <laughs> So yeah, he he was a cool guy though. He was he was good, and we uh, that record was a lot of fun to make. That one really kind of got we were able to get a lot of our kind of psychedelic rocks off on it. Uh, also, I, a, a record full of memorable tunes. Yeah, yeah. thanks. Uh, yeah, that was that was I really loved that record. I mean, that, I love that record, and I loved it more than the first one, and it sold the exact same amount. You know, so we did uh, that Doug Factor crowd. There was a thousand people who made up the Doug Factor. That's what we learned from the, those early days. And then we recorded a third. We were getting ready to record a third record. We did a bunch of demos. And by this point, we were really, our sound was starting to change more. I remember like uh, Kinks, you know, the Village Green Preservation Society became like, you know, my overwhelming yeah. album at that period. We were a song maybe called A Big Tree? Yeah, Good Tree, Good right? Tree, right. Yeah. So that was kind of like, you know, the, the anchor of this new batch of songs we did. And we went and recorded them and did demos. We started sending them out. By this time, like some actual independent labels had interest in us. Do you remember, remember who? Uh... Bar None. The guy from Bar None, sure. really nice guy. I'm blanking on his name right now. And he used to always keep in touch with us, you know, always send me what you got. I like you guys, et cetera, right? He would have so fit right in with their roster right? yeah. of, you know, sort of pop. And yeah. yeah. So we sent him this new batch of recordings, and he, you know, he called me. He's like, Jim, what is this? I'm like, it's our new stuff. He's like, you sound like the fucking Grateful Dead. What happened to you? <laughs> Like, I don't know. You know, this is what we're doing now. I can't imagine where you heard I the mean, Grateful I, Dead. Yeah, I, I don't know why it was Grateful Dead suddenly, yeah. but yeah, it was funny, you know. And but so we just said, you know, well, you know, too bad. He doesn't like it. Somebody else doesn't like it. This is what we are now. This is what we want to do. And we're just driving down that road, no stopping us. And at the same time, we've been gigging a lot now, right? So we were starting kind of our general week would be, you know, work our crappy jobs. Thursday night, we'd have a show in New York, Friday, Boston, Saturday, back in Philadelphia. We'd do like these little jaunts up and down or down to D.C., you know, and back. You even did one longer tour. Yeah, I, I so can remember the whole band coming back with mustaches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we did, we, did, we did a couple of little tours. We did a tour with the, with the Dead Milkmen. They took that for like eight shows in the Midwest and Toronto. Did you so have that a was good great. time? Did you get a good response? Amazing time, yeah. Really good response. Uh, you know, it was kind of fun playing with that. Uh, that Dead Milkman audience because they were playing all these all ages shows. So we go to these places. I remember we played this big club in, in Cleveland and there were like a thousand kids there. You know, most of them were probably like 14, 13. <laughs> so they had no idea about our weird points of reference. And, you know, so we were always geared to playing to people like you, like music head guys who knew, you know, what obscure song we were like fitting into the middle eight in a song, right? And suddenly we're like faced with playing all these kids who are amped up to see the dead milkmen who delivered the goods for them, right? And I remember Mike came out on stage, Mike Frank, and he just sat down at the edge of the stage and played bass for the first few songs, just sitting with his feet swinging over the stage, like, because he just felt like he's playing to like, you know, 
Wee Willie Weber show or something <laughs> like that. It was so bizarre for us. You know, we did all right there. We had fun. I remember we played a you know, showing Akron, you know, and that was exciting for me. A rock you know, town. Yeah, and, you know, because we, we were all, like, Perubu fans, you know, so we're like, yeah, this is cool, we're playing Akron, you know, at the university there, and, you know, I just, uh, I think it was at that show, after the, sh- after the show, there was, like, a club nearby, and the, the organizers of the, you know, the, the school concert committee put on, like, a, an after-show party, and I remember we walked into this club and they're like blasting our record, you know, and, you know, I remember Mike Frank saying, like, this is great. You know, it's like it's like we're in a Beatles movie. suddenly, you know, and they're all these like, you know, college kids, you know, all you know, fawning over. So that was great again. You know, yeah, so, it seemed like it brought me a town yeah. where the, the, the college station had grabbed a hold of you and suddenly you had a following. That right. You yeah. Unaware yeah. Of. And that whole college, you know, the college radio scene was great back then, you know, just the you know, the possibilities with it. And of course, you're not going to hit everywhere. You know, plenty of people didn't like us for good reasons, and that's fine. <laughs> but it was really fun when you could find a little pocket. You know, Boston, we always did well in Boston. And, you know, so every time we played Boston, we'd either be, you know, headlining or opening for someone good. And, you know, just always got a great reception. There are all these, they kind of, you know, Boston was just loaded with like, kind of like, weirdo jock guys you know who kind of got what you know got like our energy and our whole you know kind of boys club vibe that we gave up did you play up there the big ones we played the most were tt the bears and green street station i think it was called we played the rat once that sucked that was i know like a legendary place but that was that was nothing special except we we got to meet the guy there was like a doorman who had a a voice box, you know, one of those guys who lost his, you know, and I just remember at the end, he's like, you guys were good. You know, when, <laughs> his robot voice. Yeah, that weird robot voice. That's my main memory of the rat. But it was mostly T.T. the Bears and Green Street Station. And, uh, like, we got to play, we did this one show where we were the middle band, and Galaxy 500 had just started. They were the first band, and the Lemonheads were the headliners. And Galaxy 500 played, they were pretty good, you know, kind of like that, you know, third Velvet Underground album kind of thing that they do to death. Uh, And then, you know, I thought, like, we played a really good set. We were all psyched up, and some of our friends came up, you know, surprised us from Philadelphia, and we had friends in Boston because Mike Frank's from that area. And and then we, Lemonheads came on, and it was one of the worst shows I've ever seen anyone did. They didn't do anything that sounded remotely like music. Like, I don't know if they were on <laughs> certain drugs that made them incapable of forming a chord, but it wasn't even like free jazz. It was just crap. It was worse than like the Zone's <laughs> first concert. And I just remember we were watching them and think like, why are these guys on a label and why aren't we? Evan you know, Dando, the, yeah, the, the very yeah. good looking. Uh, yeah, leader, he was yeah. better looking than us. That was probably a reason. <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, through those kinds of experiences, then we, you know, so we started comparing ourselves because, you know, a lot of us are sports guys, too, so we, we get, like, a little ultra competitive, and we started driving ourselves crazy from that point forward, like, you know, why them? Why not us? Why do they have our piece of the pie? You know, who's this guy? And, you know, and it just, we started to just kill ourselves with that. So, you know, probably within a year after we put out Traps, and we were doing all these shows and getting write-ups and papers and magazines. And we're, you know, feeling we should have been feeling really good, but instead we were kind of crucifying ourselves and saying, you know, we'd come home from a show and like, you know, just have these fights like, we're not good enough, you know, you have to do this more. You're not stretching yourself, man. You know, and we'd have these like blowouts, you know, at three in the morning in Headhouse. And uh and and eventually it just resulted in us telling Andy, who was the only person who had a decent job 
telling Andy that, you know, Andy, you're not committed enough. You know, we need to go on the road more. You know, you got to quit your job and you got to get a crappy job like us and, you know, tour because we're just about there, dude, if we just go for it. And, you know, that's kind of what that's what broke us up the first time. did that breakup last a long time so we tried to carry on with me lead singing which was terrible uh you know i could sing enough change the the name of the band as well yeah we even changed the name to frankenslade you know because we just wanted to get away from nixon's head it was our whole 
you know, Spinal Tap Mach 5 or whatever that thing was, you know, our, our new direction. You were the other grip weeds at <clears> Yeah, we point? tried to be the grip weeds at first, then we realized there was already a grip weeds. Okay. Uh, so then we, you know, we became Frankenslade, Mike Frank and Jim Slade, you oh, know. Autumn Carousel, I well, thought. Well, so Autumn Carousel, then that's another well. thing, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so we did this Frankenslade thing, and I just couldn't sing. You know, I couldn't mm-hmm. sing that well to begin with, and I really couldn't sing live. I thought you were really great as a, a back, like the harmonies with you and Andy were, were great. Yeah. But Andy, is a tough act to follow you right know, yeah a very emotive uh, lead singer you know like in in my fantasy world andy and i are like you know the roger daltrey and, and pete townsend of the fantasy world that i live in and <laughs> you know when you first hear pete townsend sing that one song you're like oh he's cool he should sing more and then you hear like a whole pete townsend album, it's like no i want daltrey back you know and that's kind of like <laughs> that was kind of in nixon's head terms what happened you know, I think it became clear really early on that we needed Daltrey back. <laughs> and, and yeah, so then there was this period, you know, then Andy ended up moving to Chicago uh, or to Evanston, actually. And uh, so it's funny. So then there was this long period where we were no longer Nixon's head. We were still all old friends, best friends and, you know, trying to do whatever. And Autumn Carousel. So early on in the band's years, there used to be a time when Andy used to have a standard family dinner, you know, when we were like in in our college years still, when he was home in the summers. And so on those nights, on those Friday nights, we used to goof around for about an hour before Andy caught up with us. And we had this habit of coming up with fake bands. And there was Autumn Carousel and the Dukes of Badass and uh, uh, Sultans of Hell and, you know, all these, you know, we come up with you know let's write a song let's write a bad heavy metal song let's write a southern rock song whatever uh and uh three miles island that was kind of our jazz band you know (laughs) so we we do all these things and autumn carousel was one of these offshoot bands so when nixon's head broke up we had these autumn carousel songs developing and i was hanging out a lot with dave ragsdale who was in between bands his bands had broken up jim hostetter from the wishniaks his bands had broken up and this other friend of ours, Terry, and Mike Fingeroff. And so we decided, let's just start having fun and become Autumn Carousel. And we were playing this, you know, it was kind of like our version of Spinal Tappers. And it was like, the the conceit was we were a third-rate, you know, British invasion, like folk rock band, like a third-rate Hollies. <laughs> and we wrote all these songs. We had a whole band history. And we'd write to the history, you know, like, we got to write some songs from the first album. We got to write some songs from, you know, the third album, et cetera. And then, you know, into the solo pursuits. And we ended up having about 50 songs in a short time. <laughs> and we used to play primarily all acoustic. Uh, the best shows were at Old City Coffee in Philadelphia, this little tiny coffee house. And we didn't have any amplification. We were just us in the audience. And it was funny because it was both uh, like a, a labor of love, but it was also kind of like, a way for us to all kind of say like you know fuck you to to all of our dash dreams of you know becoming these like indie rock stars so that now we're just kind of kind of gonna cry in our teacups for a couple of years <laughs> so that was a really fun band uh and then the thing that broke that up was when some of the guys wanted to turn it into a real band and then there was a split because half of us wanted to stay in character and keep getting stupider. And we wanted to get into our bad prog rock era and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and the other guys, the other half of the band didn't want to go down that road. And that's what that's what ended that. And then eventually Nixon's head decided, you know, we kind of grown up and had lives and just said, you know what, Let, we're still the band. We still love playing. Let's just keep doing it, not worrying about anything else. And yeah. that's how it's been ever since. 
Well, you've been in the band at this point longer than you've not been in the band yes. by far. Yeah. yeah, yeah. In fact, I was you know thinking that you, you measure rock bands in. Uh, you measure their existence in terms of the Rolling Stones, the yeah. first band I always talked about. They've been together for how many years right. now? And I guess Nixon's head would be like at their voodoo lounge point at this point <laughs> yeah. or something. Yeah. Uh, for, the, for the amount of years Artistically, too. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the band, I remember uh, the band breaking up. I also remember, I think, a singles, maybe a, a pair of singles, maybe, uh yeah. Re-emerging in the '90s, was it? Yeah, we put out a single in when, like. When do you think you broke up? Would it be '80? So we broke up '89, I'm gonna 89, say, yeah. and then probably a couple years later, probably like '91. Uh-huh. Andy was getting married, and uh, you know, we weren't the type like the idea of going to a strip club or you know doing something crazy like that. You know, crazy. You're such good boys. Yeah, that wasn't in our in our vocabulary, and so we decided for his bachelor party. Let's book studio time and record some songs. So that's what we did. We booked studio time and we recorded some songs, and then we uh, booked some more studio time. And, and yeah, uh, David Snyder put out a record, uh, a single, and, and that was really fun. We played a couple more shows, you know. And, and uh, Fingeroff was back from wherever he'd gone. Fingeroff had moved somewhere, and he was back for a while. And we did some shows with Fingeroff. And uh, we did a really fun show. I remember that the Kyber with Steve Sagan even came back and played bass on a couple tracks. <laughs> and then again, you know, we kind of fizzled out again just because, you know, everybody then finally started to get a life. You know, everybody started getting married off and, you know, having real jobs that you couldn't just like, you know, crap out on whenever you felt like you're, it. You're mentioning uh, yeah. uh, the projecting on on the finishing of, of the the book that you're working on. Yeah. Uh, that that maybe, maybe it ends there when... It, when uh, you know, maybe, maybe youth is left behind, and, and you got married, and uh, the whole band sort of moves into that that different time. Yeah, yeah, it was kind of interesting to like finally start to feel like all that stuff that we'd done. It didn't quite get us every little rock fantasy that we might have wanted out of it, but it actually did help us become like humans. You know, so we we actually got to the point where we were more than just you know, boys sitting in our bedrooms listening to records and getting high all day. You know, it was kind of kind of interesting to get to a point where you started to see other avenues and, you know, we realized we were still going to be friends and we were still going to play music together. But, you know, if we wanted to do some of the other things that we, you know, we're hoping to do someday, we better put some time in on that now. <laughs> well, there's a, there's a real sense that, that I often feel with, with men that uh, they're unable to discuss their emotions directly, so they'll discuss very emotionally, you know, sports or, yeah. or music or film or whatever, whatever the passion is, and that's how they can, you know, put a barrier between them and their emotions and make it somewhat less direct. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> but as you know, women move into men's lives often. It is, uh, you know, you 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 grow that extra, uh, you know, part of your soul that needs to be grown. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was good, and uh, and and it's been good. I mean, like that's the other cool thing is, you know, we've been playing together all these years. You know, our families all get together and hang out. So you know, like the, you know, the fantasy of all the guys on the the big pink album cover. You know, with all the the band crew all hanging out. You know. We're actually maintaining that where people aren't dropping off, thankfully, and, you know, people are all staying together. And uh, it, it's been, you know, kind of all that part of the fantasy has worked out really well. Yeah. And yeah. another thing that surprises me when I see 
uh, people that I that I've seen playing in their twenties. Um, I think of Andy Chalfin, who was in the yeah. Wishniacs and is now in uh, the Midnight. I think band. like Midnight. Was, I yep. think like Midnight. Yeah. Um, is that you know, twenty or thirty more years of playing guitar, uh, playing your instrument, that people have become pretty phenomenally fluid on yes. their on their instruments in a way that they, they maybe weren't back in their yeah. in their high energy youth days. You it's know? true. Yeah. I mean, Andy's just you know he's got like his own thing, and he's he's kind of just cultivated that through the years and it's great to see you know what he's done with that and, and it really is fun seeing those people you know through the years I, you know I still remember us all being like babies meeting each other and it's kind of cool to see that a lot of people are you know sticking with things so musically where, where do you how do you think the band now is different than it was back in the those you know, those youthful days yeah so I mean it's it's way more you know because of time limitations the the kind of um, you know research and development laboratory type of, of starting points are even more important because we have to maximize time. Uh, so a lot of things are the same. I kind of you know I write most of the songs. Mike Frank writes the other ones. Andy, who can't really play any instruments, is usually the main arranger of stuff. He he really has a good knack of how the how the rhythm should work. So he'll work with Seth and you know and us to get the rhythm straight. Uh, you know, Mike and I have always have a pretty good idea where we want to take it, but Andy kind of knows how to get there. And then we start, you know, putting down stuff in our studio. We have a studio in, in my garage, and um, and you know, then it's just like let's get to the next record and let's learn a new batch of songs and then let's maximize it. You know, the six shows we'll play a year at this point. Uh, we we get our rocks off on them and and try to do all we can. But the goal is always like. How can we, you know, get maximum energy and a couple weird twists in a three-minute spot, you know, at a time? Uh, so in that way, it's not too much different, probably. But the thing we don't get anymore is the 3 a.m., you know, stoned out of our minds uh, sessions, you know, where we try to do stuff that we have no business doing and see where that leads us. <laughs> I know you have a, a couple sons. What do, you, what do your kids think of the music? They seem to like it, you know. Uh, our oldest boy, he's 18 now, and uh, he has a really good ear for music, and I feel like we have successfully brainwashed him on a lot of the essentials. So he has, in my opinion, really good taste, and the new stuff he gets into that I've never heard of, you know, he has a really good uh, rationale. He can kind of defend himself. Like, if there was a family business in being, you know, this self-appointed rock snob, he would be able to carry it on from me. So I'm really proud of that. Uh, you know, like every once in a while, like he recently texted me from college and he said, I met this new friend and uh, he turned to me, he said, like, have you ever heard this band Tortoise? They're a lot like Eno. I think you would like them. And this new guy, and he, he wrapped it up at the end. He said something like, uh, he's a lot like us. And I was like so touched by that because, you know, your kids get older and they start drifting away from you and he wants to be his own guy. And I was glad that there was still an us, still a, still a us. musical us. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So it's, it's great. Both boys really do love music. Uh, they, they really know how to pinpoint things and they have their opinions, which I, you know, I, I just love hearing people with their opinions on music and, you know, like hearing people, uh, kind of you know put it on the table themselves oh that leads yeah. right, right into the, the next thing I, I wanted to touch on is uh, your your lengthy uh helming of the Rocktown hall blog yeah when, when did that kick off man must have been sometime like late 90s or i think it's about 
12 or 13, 14 years in. That's a long time. Originally early a, 2000. A, originally, uh, this will date it. It was originally a Yahoo One list. Yes. Which, uh, yep. Yeah, I was part of at some point there. Yeah. So what it was was, you know, I always had this little group of friends, you know, and you were one of them. We, you know, whenever we see each other, start chatting about music. And then, you know, when email came about, everybody's, you know, locked up in their in their adult lives. You could still fire off emails to your friends, you know, cutting on this or that, you know, how about this new record? And so when these whole Yahoo group things came out, we're like, let's just take all those emails and throw them into this one spot. And we did that for a couple of years. And then one of my old college friends, this guy Jason from Northwestern, we kind of re- rekindled our friendship after years of not you know, being in touch too often. He lives out in Los Angeles. Jason's a, a web designer. He said, hey, Jim, I think what you have here is great. Why don't we put it in a real blog format, kind of give it its own frame, make it its own place? So we did that. And the first five years of it were just unbelievably fun and active. You know, we had a lot of participants, you know, we'd put a post up and it could be something really stupid, you know, something focused on, you know, the influence of someone's new hairdo on how, you know, why their music changed, you know, something ridiculous. And people really had a, a good sense about it. And, you know, there'd be maybe like 200 comments would result. And, you know, people get into like really kind of like furious debates over stupid things. And, you know, the <laughs> also, part also of me, some real journalism yeah, in real there. Journalism also some, too. some interviews with, with yeah, musicians. We do and, interviews. Yeah. So it was really cool. So it was this it was this kind of, you know, really beautiful forum for that part of me that likes talking rocks, you know, rock stuff. And, you know, so, you know, most of the time I could get that stuff out of my system. So when I'm at a party with other people who aren't 100 percent like me, I could I had that out of my system, but still, you know, I go to a party. I'm still going to go off into a corner. Isn't it nice when they send the person over like they're really into music? <laughs> yes. Too. Yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's a piece of the writing that you did about uh, oh my somebody God, like, when yeah. are you going to play real music? Yeah. Real music. So you finally pin them down about what is real music, and they appear with that John Denver yes. record with the bald John haircut Den- yes. and the big smile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why do you play something like John Denver? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so it, you know, it, it's 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 been a great outlet. I mean, you know, the the kind of whole blogging thing has been, you know, hijacked by the ease of Facebook. So I think that we're never going to have, you know, the clubhouse kind of got broken up again. Another one of my many clubhouses that I resort <laughs> to in life. You know, I, uh, I should just I should just actually build a clubhouse and just hole myself up in there at some point. Because uh, like I'm a lodge yeah. where right. we can all wander in yeah. at midnight and yeah. complain about uh, you know the new Bowie uh, yeah. style. Yeah, but Rocktown Hall was really fun. I mean, it's still hanging in there. Uh, you know, I haven't had the energy and time to put toward it like I wish I could again. Uh, but, you know, getting to do interviews with, you know, some of my heroes, you know, Roger Pacherian, you know, who nobody else probably cares about except for the, you know, five guys in Nixon's head. Uh, you know, Martin uh, Martin Belmont from The the Rumor. You know, I just had this amazing scab chite with him, which is like talking to you, you know? Just mm-hmm. we're sitting there talking about music, <laughs> and I'm talking with this guy who was like, you know, slaving over everything going on in those records when I was a kid. It was so nice. It's amazing how, how reachable so many uh, music people are today through the internet. Like, it is. You know, I can have a quick back and forth with... Uh, uh, William Friedkin suddenly, yeah. <laughs> you know, just because he's on somebody's Facebook account or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's kind of cool. I, I remember years ago, you know, being at a club and uh, I was with Jay, and there was some band playing. I forget who it was, but it was 
Will Rigby from the DBs was was the drummer in the band, and I love the DBs. The first two records, again, you know, that's another one of those bands like the Undertones that we just those first two records were just you know they're just in a case. I for bought those Nixon's expensive guys, imports right? yeah, because right? I read about them in Rolling Stone. Yeah. So it's like you know, right after, not too long after the DBs had kind of you know faltered, and uh, Jay's Jay Schwartz I'm with Jay, and you know he knows everybody from the old days, and he's like, you know, Jim, do you want to meet Will Rigby? I was really shy about. It. I was like. Oh, you know, I feel weird. You know, what am I going to say? I love your records, you know, and feel like some little like fanboy. And he's like, Jim, do you realize how few people really know their records? Like he would appreciate it, you know, and, and, and I did. I went up and talked to him and he was very nice. And it was kind of cool when you start to realize that musicians are people too. <laughs> well, I, I always had that line about people. I want to do them a favor and, and just give them a slight nod and right. let them go. And other people like, I'm going to lay it on thick. Yeah. And I, Will Rigby, I saw him playing with Carmeg DeForest, the uh-huh. protest ukulele yeah. player. Gordon Gainos was in the band. And uh, Will Rigby played drums, and I brought the copy of his solo record. Uh-huh, yeah. And uh, he, you know, his eyes got wide, and he said, yeah. I think you and my mom are the only people that have this. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, uh, is there anything else you want to cover here? Nothing I can think. I mean, you know, Rocktown Hall, I mean, next Nixon's head show, we're doing this thing, you know, talk about our teenage fantasies we're doing a whole night we're going to play as the magnificent seven wow it's a joke we've been you and know, this is this is your clash yeah our clash show? tribute show we've years, been joking years about this since we started the band pretty much years ago were you in the i'm trying to remember were you in the Matha hoople mosh the hoople yeah. yeah yeah so with uh it was like half head guys and half dead milkmen on the same with a with, with uh heavy indigo, heavy indigo. <laughs> the I deep had purple the... cover band yeah <laughs> That was a great night. We did that, I think, I two there. shows. Yeah. 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 So, the uh, you know, we've been wanting to do, like, you know, just joking around about doing Clash covers, a whole night of Clash covers, just one time. Uh-huh. And Andy finally said a couple months ago, why don't we really do this? So I called the boot and saddle. And it was, again, you know, one of these ideas where Andy and I got sold on it right away and just had to go off to the races, <laughs> call boot and saddle. They're like, great idea. Let's do it. And then we had to convince the rest of the band to do it. So Seth is going to play this show. He's not going to he's not going <laughs> to bail out. Is it, is it he's be totally the, prepared. And he the, feels the breadth we're, of, we're the, up of to the Clash's it. career. Have you, uh, First four albums. No combat rock. That no was combat rock. Yeah, that was that was one limitation we all agreed on early on or, uh, you know, the, the cut the crowd. Not no even cut not the Crap. Even not even not even cut the crap no <laughs> we did we did uh we did toy with uh pulling out a song from ellen foley's spirit of st louis which the clash yeah. play yep, on right yep yep but no big audio dynamite no encores. big audio dynamite no no <laughs> and, and it's you know and i remember seeing the clash when sandinista it was actually when combat route came out and that Sandinista, I, I love Sandinista, but it did not translate well live. Oh, really? So I think it's I think it's going to help us. If they couldn't do it live, I don't think we can either. So we're, <laughs> we're going to tiptoe into the Sandinista. <laughs> That's great. When's, when is that happening? April 30th at uh, Boot and Saddle. Wow. And there's a, and an R.E.M., like an actual dedicated R.E.M. cover band called Lower Wolves, who's opening. <laughs> So they'll continue do the, doing the REM. We'll have our one night only as, you know, living out our clash fantasies. And it's funny because early on you, you wanted to establish yourself not as a cover band. I right, think. exactly. And your high school is the Crimson Mist. Right, the, right. Uh, the yeah, we weren't going to be like Crimson Mist. No way. <laughs> <laughs> we're at the point in our careers, if you want to call it that, where we're just kind of holding out until we're in our 70s. 
and eventually possibly will be the last men standing and you know we'll be like those those last people who you know took a lesson from Charlie Patton or something and, you know somehow we'll you know at 75 we'll get our, our Grammy album and then we'll die well you know it's, it's something I've seen in the world of jazz there's a lot of you know yeah. journeyman jazz men that, that putted around right. for years but as the, the all the rest of the uh, purveyors die off suddenly yep. they're the uh, the holders of the ancient wisdom. Yeah, longevity counts for something. <laughs> <laughs> Should we wrap it up here? Yeah, I think this has been good. Oh, wow, Jim. It's, it's, been it's, it, it's been great. Uh, thanks so much for uh, coming to the kitchen here. And, Thank you. Uh, and talking to the yeah. Fun to Know podcast. Uh, That's it for our show. One, two, three, four. Again, you can check out The Head performing their one-time-only Clash tribute as the Magnificent Seven Saturday, April 30th at the Boot and Saddle on Broad Street in Philly. You can check out Nixon's Head's music at Jim's Groove Discs site. That's GrooveDiscs.com, D-I-S-Q-U-E-S. And check out more of Jim's writing at RockTownHall.com. Check out past episodes of the Fun to Know podcast at SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Catch me spinning jazz Mondays at 11 a.m. EST on WPRB Princeton. Check out my film reviews at Falker.com and check back in two weeks for more Fun to Know. We're free, I tell you. So wake up. It's time. Why I cry?